Cinema Oddities, Late Night Movies with Rob, Ben, and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities, where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally these projects gel, most times they crash, hard, into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Ben. And I'm sorry, could you hold on? I was just in the middle of setting fire to your gang. I, I have to say, Ben, when I first sat down to watch this for this recording, I was totally gung-ho. I was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to bastardize it however I need to get the, the – it starts with end I'm in there. But I'm going to use from this movie as my opening quote our favorite line that I think we've referenced now like ten times on this podcast. The whole thing about taking the picture with the crowbar. But then yeah. it got to the point – where Joker actually said the line that I quoted. I'm sorry, could you hold on? I was just in the middle of setting fire to your gang. And I was like, well, the movie just teed me up for that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good quote. I'm glad you picked that one. Uh, I I actually had a similar thought while I was watching that scene that you'd probably try to use it. And I was like, I don't I don't know if there's a good way to make it happen. So. <laughs> right, you know, he never says I'm. He says, you know, it's like, I mean, I'll, we'll put the crowbar clip in many times i'm sure the whole family's here yes yes oh my god it's so good i mean not only is that line so good not only is that whole climactic scene so good this whole movie is fantastic i mean ben i i know that when uh, we decided to do this this month this uh longer one monday longer than usual series on adult animation and we'll get a little bit more into that in, in a bit um we said oh let's do under the red hood and i know i kind of pitched that because it's an animated movie that's i think notably once again something else we'll dive into not for children um even though it's a batman and comic book related thing and i knew we both liked it i knew we both even i think this is the first question i wanted to ask you ben did we watch this together back um in your your first apartment in ohio i kind of feel like we did but i don't remember do you do you remember uh, i don't remember explicitly um that being said i was that was right around the time that i like fell in love with this movie okay so i'd be surprised if i didn't bring it up gotcha okay and so i think you know Maybe after we watched it back then, that would have been, what, 2013, maybe, somewhere around there. I maybe watched it once since, and maybe it was because I was like, you know, Phil came over to like visit me in Colorado, and Phil loves Batman, and so I was like, oh, you know, we'll watch some Batman, and we probably, you know, watched some episodes of the old 90s animated show, and then I was like, oh, Under the Red Hood, that's a good one. I haven't seen it since then. There was so much I forgot about this movie, so much I'm so excited to talk about, and I, like I said, we just pitched it because, you know, we were both like, oh, man, you know, we like this. It's Batman. It's fun. It's good. It's adult. It's not for kids. And then I kind of realized as I watched this very short 75-minute piece of animation that this kind of, you know, gets it the entire thesis of not only what I want to talk about in this series of animation, but what I believe in and of animation itself can be or can do as a cinematic experience, if that makes sense. Um and and I have some, you know, talking points to get into uh, on that thing. But, Ben, I want to ask you right off the bat, when was the last time you saw this? Uh, the last time I saw it, oh, God. Uh, what's the thing you always say about blowing up my spot? I think I watched this movie, like, <laughs> half a year ago. Oh, And wow, I think before okay. that, the last time I had seen it had been, like, half a year before that. Gotcha. Uh, okay, okay. Like so I, you're more I, deep I in to, it. Okay. Uh, I tend to throw this movie on in the background probably twice a year. Um, just because, you know, if I'm sitting around, I'm bored, I don't know what to watch, I have something I want to work on or, or 
whatever. I have some time to kill. I'm just like, you know, fuck it. Under the Red Hood is still on HBO. So so why not take advantage of that fact? Absolutely. I'm going to start doing that, I think, because, well, I think it it lends itself, you know, to that format because it is so short. Um, It is so kind of, you know, hard hitting. I think there's definitely, you know, some moments that you can very easily look away. Not that I'm saying you shouldn't watch this movie attentively, but if you've seen it and you know it, you know, and you get to the second segment where it's like, oh, Batman's chasing the Red Hood again, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. It's like, okay, yeah. you know, I can just have this on the background and it's going to comfort me, that type of thing. Sure, yeah, I mean, there's there's that scene where, you know, he he sh- shoots him with the, the tether and the guy cuts the rope before it goes before it goes taut Fucking in uh, Nightwing's work. some dope shit right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. But you know that that whole scene, like you said, it's uh, it's like like therapeutic almost. Just, yes, you know you get to watch Batman save a save the world from a helicopter falling, and then and then run across some buildings and some rooftops, and it's it's just good good classic Batman. Absolutely, and I mean especially with the animation style, you know, being so so much like the classic Batman, the animated series, you know, with the blend of CG elements, we're kind of doing the overture once again, Ben. I'm setting up all these points. I mentioned it already though, and I, I felt this should be a top line item. One of the biggest things I did not remember about this movie is who voices the Joker. And even in that first scene, when, you know, before the cold open, I guess, of this movie, you know, when we get good old Raja Ghoul saying, you know, I should never have allied myself with a madman, um, which was another possible quote I was going to say at the start of this, because, Ben, you are a madman. Um, I was like, who's the I was like, who's the Joker in this? I was like, I don't think it's Mark Hamill. I think Mark Hamill was past playing the Joker in 2010 when this movie came out. And of course, you know, before the credits rolled, I um, while I was uh, watching the Joker beat Robin with a crowbar, I looked it up and I was shocked because I'm actually upset with myself that I don't not know. Figuring it out. I well. Well, no, not not for not figuring it out, because I think me not figuring it out is a testament to his, to his God. Voice yes, his God status as a voice actor. But I yeah. should have remembered this, that it is none other than the great, the ultimate John DiMaggio, who, of course, I, Ben, you and I know. Everybody check out the Patreon. Ben, you getting my you know, angle right here as Jake I, the dog from Adventure Time. How? Oh, my God. I, I was blown away. And once I realized that, I was like, I know I like this movie already. I think I'm going to like it more now. <laughs> I, I just have to say I'm a little disappointed that you didn't go with, like, calling him the Jaker or something. Ooh. I don't know. That's Don't get me wrong. It's not necessarily a great joke. But but it's it's there. I didn't think of it. Honestly, didn't think of it. That's not even something I threw on the like, cutting room floor or anything. Uh the Jaker's pretty funny, though. But see, once again, maybe just on the topic of John DiMaggio, you know, of course, like, the Jaker is great because I love him best as Jake the Dog. Now he's this Joker. But of course, you know, he's also Bender. And I think that's what he has his, oh, like, yeah. one voice acting award for is Bender, you know? Um, he's also Waka from Final Fantasy X, Gilgamesh from Final Fantasy Twelve, Marcus Phoenix from Gears of War. Like, he's... He's one of the best voice actors ever. And I heard a quote once. It's, I think it's from a voice acting like documentary I watched because I love voice acting. That's going to be a big part of this whole animation month. And I remember somebody, um, they, they were interviewing in this documentary a like voice actor who was probably famous. I don't remember exactly who it was. But they say something like, you know, young voice actors, they ask me, how do you get into voice work? And I tell them, you know, practice your voices, practice being consistent with them, practice doing really weird emotions in those voices, and then wait for Nolan North to die. 
Nolan North is is a very very famous voice actor. Uh, most to me, most famously, Rick Tofen from the Call of Duty Zombies series, um, the Black Ops series. But I think that quote would be better well put or more well put if they said, you know, put all the work in, do the time, perfect your craft, and then wait for John DiMaggio to die because anything you can do, he can do better. <laughs> That's, yeah, John DiMaggio is a very talented voice actor, and to that end, I, I I will have to say I also did not guess it, um, because of how talented he is. Uh, it was actually <laughs> I watched this movie with my wife, and at some point during it, she was like, "I know that voice," and it was after he made like a guffaw sound, <laughs> okay. not not even a voice line, and she was just like, so she looked it up, and then and we talked about it, and and, and she pointed out to me it was John DiMaggio, and I was like. I can't believe this. Uh, I can't. It, it, it is. It it's is. So like like we said, it's a testament to how godly he is. And I mean, even think of the other ones that I mentioned. I mean, Marcus Phoenix, I haven't heard in a while because I'm not a big Gears of War fan. But like Gilgamesh, I mean, I that is stuck in my head ever since I played it before I really knew who John DiMaggio was, like from Final Fantasy XII. Fools, now you face the Blade of Legend. And, you know, Waka has like this Jamaican flair to him, that type of thing. Bender will always be Bender. Like, that's such a unique voice that, you know, I feel like even when people quote Bender and they say, like, I'm going to make my own casino with blackjack and hookers, even if they don't do the voice themselves, you hear Bender's voice in your head. That's how powerful that voice acting performance is. Um, it's the same thing with Billy West, who, of course, does Fry and, um, you know, a lot of the characters um, in Futurama. But the good news, everyone... Even though I just did a terrible Dr. Farnsworth, you heard Dr. Farnsworth in your head. Like, that's Definitely. how strong that voice performance is. And, dude, like I said, started this movie. I saw, you know, it was John DiMaggio. And it was one of those things, like we talked about, once again, on the Patreon. Everybody go check it out. In Zero Effect, once I realized that was a Sherlock Holmes story, I just sunk back into my chair and I went, man, I'm home. I'm comfortable. I'm in for the ride, you know, that type of thing. And... Overall, I mean, there's a lot more to talk about with this movie, but it was a great fucking ride, man. I'm so glad we chose it. <laughs> Same. I'm. I mean, you know, I have a soft spot for this movie. I'm. I'm always happy to watch it again. Yes. And so, of course, as I mentioned before, um, we're talking animation this month. Talking animation because I think the best way to say it, Ben, is that you and I love animation. And not only do we love animation, but we've said it many times before on this podcast, main feed or, or Patreon, that. It is a truly unfortunate fact that in the modern era, um, in our lifetimes, I would even say, even before our lifetimes, mainstream animation, as I think seen by critics and non-critics, laymans, if you will, alike, it's considered to be a childish medium, you know? I mean, people think it's for Pixar. It's for Disney princesses. It's for Rockadoodle, if you want to, you know... If that's a big animation episode. I think we hit that a lot in that episode on Patreon. But I know you and I, Ben, we disagree with that fact. Yes, it can be used for childlike things, childlike whimsy, to great effect. But what it does is, in fact, allow for a deeper sense of cinematic experience. I think there are things that you can do in animation that live-action directors wish they could do with their actors and their settings and their experiences. I think animation is... 
in the truest sense, a surreal form of artwork, not in the sense that surreal and the audience might be thinking about it, but in terms of the French origin, surreal, on top of reality. It extends reality to a greater, you know, a, a greater sense of momentum. And I think that this movie gets at a big angle specifically in the combat. But I think not only in combat with Batman, but as we go through this month and talk about a lot of different animated movies... Um, that are notably for adults, a lot of animated movies that use different forms of animation. I, I think that's kind of our big thesis. And please, you know, correct me if I'm wrong or add to this, Ben, that we want it. We want to spend this month on this topic because we really want to bring to light some of the ways that, you know, we think about animation and how maybe more people should be thinking about it rather than dismissing it and saying, you know, ah, no, you know, animated movies, yeah, frozen. That's for kids. Is it for kids is is that one point three billion dollars? Did all those kids go to the uh, the movie theaters for it? That's beside the point, Ben. But do do you get what I'm saying? Am I making sense? Is that a clear idea of why we're doing animation this month? Uh, yeah, and I mean just just to kind of reiterate, like animation. I I think just the fact that like Saturday morning cartoons are a thing, yeah. is one of the big reasons that people see animation as a for children type of endeavor. Uh, but I mean fucking even most of the the quote-unquote cartoons that i've watched that are animated they have some very adult themes to them yep um you know even things as silly as naruto like naruto is sometimes at times is like a ridiculously goofy show but in other times like it has some very adult very dark themes um and that's just i think that's just kind of a sign that in in that culture um they don't necessarily view animation the same way that we view it here in America. Yes. Which is that, you know, in the, in Japanese culture, like anime is a rich storytelling format and they, they approach some dark themes and they, they deal with, you know, very dark problems and very adult uh, content. And of course, when I say adult, I'm not talking about the porn aspect. I'm just talking about things that are not necessarily accessible. Thank to kids. you for correcting that. I every time I've written down in my notes or the spreadsheet, or we've talked about it, and I say adult animation, I've always been like, oh, no, we're not doing like you know erotica. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is not a hentai episode. Um, uh, that's but... next month, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're we're gonna watch four hentai movies. Um, <laughs> And then we're going to lie about whether we've seen them. Have you ever seen um, Cool World? I think Cool World was done by Ralph Bakshi. I might, I might have put a correction in. Cool World, where it's like a blend of live action and animation. Does that ring a bell to you? I've not seen it. Okay, that movie is like, I've only seen it once. I'm pretty sure it's literally about like how the way that animated characters come into the real world is by being fucked by a person. Like, it's a oh, very God. strange concept. <laughs> oh, God, that's creepy. So next month, we're going to start with Cool World, and then we'll get fully into just, you know, animated porn. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, like I, I, like I said, I just want to reiterate, like, animation, animation is fully an art form, um, and what people can do with it and what people have done with it is impressive. Uh, you already mentioned the combat. We'll touch on some specific instances in the combat where I think that the animation really like punches up the combat in a way that oh, yeah. that if done with live action would just either look wrong or or just wouldn't you wouldn't be able to do it as well. Disorienting. Um, I think this oh, yes. the animation yep. makes combat less disorienting in almost all cases. I would say. Um, you know that, but that's that's something that we should also say. We're going to get to that in this episode. Um, maybe also next week's. On your point, Ben, as well, that you know we have to go 
overseas. We have to get away from the dumb Americans to understand um, animation better. Everybody, don't worry. Ben and I have not decided which one, but we will be covering a Hayao Miyazaki movie. And I can't wait to get to that because he's somebody who like lives, eats, breathes, sleeps animation, that type of thing. Yeah, so... We'll definitely talk. Definitely talk that uh, Mayo Miyazaki is that Hayao Miyazaki. Hayao Miyazaki. <laughs> I, I switched the, some letters on you, um, but uh, but also I mean you know I, I mentioned the or you mentioned the combat, but uh, there's also um, in terms of facial expression, like they they can do a lot with animation, um, just just in things like exaggerating the size of various features of people's faces. Yep. To uh, to give certain emotions. And uh, and we see that greatly in like the that opening scene where Batman finds Jason Todd's body. Um, his face mm-hmm. is so agonized, and and through a mask, you can't do that in live action. That's a fantastic point. What you just made is I uh, I completely agree with. I could not agree with more. Is that animation? The exaggeration of features, like you said, is what allows the human emotion to come through in this animated medium. And, you know, honestly, I hear people, of course, I'm going to use this example because I'm surrounded by um, some of these people. Like, everybody always says, they're like, how cool of a character is Darth Vader in Star Wars? That's live action, but hear me out. They're like, Darth Vader is one of the most menacing villains. Every scene he's in, you can, like, project or, you know, attribute many emotions. You understand everything. And it's just a still mask, you know? It's just a guy behind a mask. And I go, well, that's where the voice acting comes in. Like, like that's what voice acting is. Why are you discrediting, discrediting animation when voice acting is a more important part of animation than it is one character behind a mask in a live-action movie? So I think, I think we're basically saying, you know, I, I wanted to reiterate with that or rebut with that because it's the two channels. Like you're saying, Ben, either they can exaggerate or exemplify certain facial features to better instill what the audience should be feeling, where, of course... In live action, that depends on how good your actor is, basically, Um, because I know we talked about it to bring it back to comic books in the Amazing Spider-Man series. Andrew Garfield, when he's supposed to be sad in those movies, looks like he has stomach cramps and diarrhea. And, you know, (laughs) Uh, but Batman, uh, when they when they make the face, you understand it. But even when you can't see their face like the Red Hood, you understand it. Yes. Uh, And I'm I'm glad you brought up. uh, And I guess we could talk about it. The Red Hood, because I'm sure they do it some in this movie. Uh, but I'm glad you brought up Spider-Man because Spider-Man is like one of the ultimate examples of this in some of his animation. Like the the eyes on his mask change sizes. Yes, yes. They they almost get like I, – I know I've seen it before. Well, I might be thinking of Into the Spider-Verse. But like chibi eyes Spider-Man, like big round and wide type of thing, you know? Oh, yeah. They, they get they, – they go through every shape you can imagine for, you know, those <laughs> little oval things. Um, or not ovals, but, you know, the pointed yeah, circle yeah. things. But um, – to to the point that in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they actually gave him moving eyes on his mask yep. through via Tony Stark. That's uh, that iconic that his eyes change sizes. Yeah, and I think um, it's not only iconic, but I, the filmmakers in there. I don't. I, this is just my presumption um, that they did that because they know that so much of Spider-Man's history is animated. And that's what people who are no Spider-Man are used to. A lot of people, not all, of course, that type of thing. I mean, I, that's a thing that makes me angry. Maybe to 
you know, pull it back to our thesis once again, is that you have all these people say that, like, animation is childish, animation is, like, a a, a lesser uh, form of media or something like that. But they don't realize, like, how much animation inspires live action. That, you know, I know we've talked about it, Ben, that, like, when you're acting in front of a camera, it's not really realistic. You have to act in a certain way to make it come across as realistic. Like, there's a divide between what you do and what is presented in terms of editing, in terms of, you know, blocking and things like that. That's, like, what what animation is. It's, like, how do you set your frame? How do you make sure that, you know, what's in the background needs to be in the background? When these facial expressions are moving, you know, how do we convey with our hand strokes, our pencil strokes, something that comes across in the reality of a human face? I think there's so much more depth to animation, the creation of animation, I should say, rather than the creation of live action. No, uh, we could probably do a whole month on what I just said right there, but, I mean, I might be getting a little off the rails I think that we're both on the same page, Ben. Anybody who dismisses animation or thinks uh, low of it, anything like that, we're here to prove you wrong. We're here to prove you wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, I'm a little interested by um, the assertions that you made in, in the sense that I don't think I've encountered such direct animosity for animation ever. In my oh, life. okay, okay. Uh, a lot of the people I know, um, like... I mean, I, I knew some people that I that we, we both knew that that I don't think either of us are particularly fond of, and they loved me. Uh, Mio Miyazaki. Hayao Miyazaki. Hayao Miyazaki. <laughs> Damn it! Sorry. You'll get Hayo it Miyazaki. by the time we do the episode on his movie, Ben. <laughs> um, so yeah, Hayao Miyazaki. They you know they loved that, uh, and then like I've known so many people that have loved anime um, to you know all the way back uh, from high school, but then even moving through college, like I, like everybody I encountered at least watched some anime. Uh, okay. At some point, um, so I, I'm intrigued by by the experience that you've had, where you where you've met people who look down on it so so drastically. Now that being said, um, parents were always the thing. Like when I was younger, parents didn't understand why we still liked animation, that kind of thing. That was one they of the points just, I was going to bring up, where they say, you know, it's like, oh, animated movies. That's what my kids want. That's what I plop my kids down in front of the TV with. You know. Sure, sure. Well, I'm talking specifically about like my friends' parents or m- even my parents. Sure, being being like I don't get or I'm not interested in this animation, uh, and then and then I guess being immediately disinterested because it's animation. Uh, so I should clarify that I m- maybe f- at least in my experience, it's like a generational thing. Definitely. Um, oh, de- I definitely think it's generational for sure. Um, because. Uh, of course, my my time frame might be a little off here, but when the baby boom generation you like was coming up, um. I, I very much think that, like, the biggest form of animation was Disney. I think Disney shaped a lot of, like, this is for kids type of thing. I mean, of course, Disney wants to sweep under the uh, Donald, Dunk, Donald Duck punches Hitler. You know, he doesn't punch him, but, you know, World War II propaganda and things like that. Maybe, maybe this is... This might be a little better suited for next week's or two weeks from now episode when we do some of the foreign animation because I know when I grew up, the whole thing with anime, and yes, in my life since like going to college, since you know getting out of New York, I've I've met a lot of people who do enjoy these things. But like for six years, uh, maybe even seven, like my middle school and my high school, like if you liked anime, you were a fucking loser. Like you were getting oh. bullied for that type of shit. You know, I guess there was some sense of that where I was from, but 
It was much smaller th- probably okay. than what you experienced. This was like rampant, you know? Like okay. that's why Zach's such a big Star Wars fan because nobody was bullying the Star Wars nerds. They were bullying the anime and animated animation fans, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you're bullying people over the anime uh, over the media they like, you're probably a loser. <laughs> so I, I would agree. I would completely agree. But yes, of course, I I might have blown up our spot. We will definitely be doing a Hayao Miyazaki movie in this series. Uh one of the adult ones, of course. Don't worry, everybody. We can't do Spirited Away. Uh, Zach and I have already covered it, which also that episode is like fucking 90 minutes long, which is insane to me. I could do a 24-hour episode by myself on Spirited Away now. Um, But we're not doing – we can't do Ponyo. We can't do Hayao Miyazaki's rendition of The Little Mermaid, you know? We can't do – Kiki's delivery service like we, we're not doing one of the kitty ones we're going to do one of the adult ones but we haven't decided yet but there's other anime that we're going to cover Ben um, I think next week we figured that one out which is considered like the seminal like adult animation movie that's almost even started the transition into the um the growth of animation seen as a higher art form in the in North America um, and I, I, I'm gonna blow up my spot right now I'm gonna make this analogy next week um Ghost in the Shell is to animation in North America as the California roll is to sushi. It's the thing that made, made it real in America. But more on that next week. And, Ben, that's a little tease for you because I know I've never told you that before. But, Ben, you know, maybe we should talk about Batman Under the Red Hood. What do you think? <laughs> uh, I don't know. That sounds out of character for us. Talking about the topic at hand? I know, right? I mean, uh... Oh, how about this? How about we'll fake out the audience this time? We'll just say, let's say, you and I, Ben, right now, tell everybody we just did an hour on rants that they get to hear if they subscribe to the Patreon. <laughs> how about that? <laughs> oh, man. So I, I definitely want to get into you know a lot of the points we've already made, the animation and stuff like that. But um, some things that I found in my research that I don't think I ever really knew about this movie um, that I wanted to bring up. One of the reasons I think, you know, after the fact that I find it so good is that it's written by Judd Winnick. And um, for anyone who doesn't know, Judd Winnick is the guy who wrote the original comic book run of Under the Red Hood. So they got the guy who wrote the original story to write the movie. And I don't think that's super common. It's more common in like comic book, like animated movie adaptations. But I think there's something special to that. Like the guy who came up with the original story who it was in, like, what, I think six six books, eight books or something like that, I've written down back in 2005, they tapped into him to say, let's turn this into, an, into a feature. And I think that owes, uh, that this movie owes a lot to its success because this is also regularly considered one of the best DC animated films ever, um, according to, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, uh, Letterboxd. I actually want to talk about what's on Letterboxd about this movie, but in general, critics, things like that. But how fucking cool is that that they were like oh you know we gotta make we want to make this into a movie let's get the guy who wrote the original story i don't think that's something that usually happens in hollywood or in you know these adaptations at all it didn't happen with Watchmen. certainly they didn't tap into you know like david moore or something like that to say hey write it they let Zack snyder go balls to the wall with it type of thing and i think this lends a sense of you know honesty to this movie that makes it shine through yeah, I mean, the closest I think we come to that is where we get authors being consulted in the writing. Yes, um, yes. Like, we talked I about that Game with um, oh, Game Game of Thrones is a great one. Big Fish we talked about. Tim Burton threw a lot of that book out or, you know, shaped, shaped it into what he wanted, that type of thing. Right. It's like, you know, at least if they're consulting the author, 
then you can get a feel for like what the author actually wanted. But even a lot in those cases, um, the the writer director of the movie studio they take they take a lot of uh, liberties. Yes. With with the uh, the medium, so to actually have the legit author doing it, like that's that's great. Yeah, and I like I said, I didn't know that uh, any time at all. I think this was the first time I learned it, and um, I was like, oh wow, that's why this works so well. I think that's a maybe not the only reason, but a contributing a huge contributing factor as to why this movie works so well. Um, also, something I really didn't know. Judd Winnick, way before he was a comic book writer, comic book artist, I, maybe an artist, he did some inking from what I read on um, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, stuff like that. He was a contestant, well, contestant might not be the right word, participant on The Real World San Francisco in 1994. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the, the reason I bring this up is because I've, I've never watched oh, any, I've maybe seen clips of any season of The Real World. I've seen more of sketch comedy making fun of the concept of the real world, like in Mr. Show, like in Chappelle's show, that type of thing. Um, the Tron special, when Dave Chappelle as Tron in um, the real world puts a blunt in a juicer and says, it's the Tron special, motherfucker! You know, that type of thing. Um, I, I've only seen clips, but I do know, because it's a very famous instance, the real world San Francisco in 1994 is the first ever televised instance of a gay ceremony they couldn't get married of course because you know gay marriage was not legal anywhere back in 1994 uh, but they were allowed to have a ceremony to represent a union and that was the first time it ever happened on tv and it was a landmark thing in tv and that's the only reason i know about it and it turns out yeah, i was gonna ask what you meant by a gay ceremony gay- I was like, what, what, what kind of- <laughs> It's like this ceremony's really gay. That's that's your that's a great question, Ben. I'm sure <laughs> as I spoke that everybody listening to it went, "What the fuck is Rob talking about?" It was like, did a little kid have like a little boy have a party with too many pink balloons? Like, what is Rob talking <laughs> about right now? You know, no, it was a, it was like a gay matrimonial ceremony without okay. the matrimony. You know, <laughs> like a relationship. Um, and it turns out that Judd Winnick was not a part of that, but Judd Winnick was a part of that season, and it all comes full circle, I guess. Um, but I thought that was really, really cool. Um, uh, you know, maybe in the same vein, you know, since we've already sung our general praises about this movie, I also want to talk about the letterbox reviews of these movies, of this movie, sorry. It is very highly rated. I think it has a 3.8, which is good for Letterboxd. Like, the histogram is definitely skewed left. A lot of people give it fives. A lot of people give it fours, 3.5s, that type of thing. But after I watched it, rated it, you know, as I do on Letterboxd, I scroll through the reviews. I want to see what other people are saying. Um, there, uh, There's a lot of wildly sexual reviews about this movie. In a positive sense, don't get me wrong, but a lot more than I kind of expected. And um, I won't read them all, because if I read them all, we'd be here forever. Um, There were two that I really wanted to highlight, because, Ben, I I thought you'd appreciate them, thought our audience would appreciate them. And um, don't worry, everybody. We're talking adult animation. Here's how adult we're going to get this series. Okay. From user Max, with two Xs, five stars. Right off the bat, you know, great. Good on you, uh, Max. Five stars. This is his review. Things Jason Todd can do that Batman can't. Number one, eat pussy. That's the end of the review. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. 
Um, the other one I want to mention is from user Jeb in some actual like interesting type font. I don't know how you do that on Letterboxd. You probably have to pay for Letterboxd, which I don't. But Jed's review, four stars, little little less positive, but still positive. His review says, quote, I want the entire Bat Fam to nut in me. <laughs> That's the whole review. And this goes on. If you actually go. Barbara Gordon's in this. Uh, <laughs> no, she's not in it, but they do make a mention to her. Well, I think a very oblique mention to her. I think Jason yes, Todd at one yeah. point says, you know, all the all the um, the it colleagues crippled our family, crippled our family. Yes. And I'm like, yeah. that has to be a, a Barbara Gordon reference. Right. Yeah, you know, definitely. that type of thing. Um, but I, I figured I'd get that out of the way that there mm-hmm. are a handful of very sexual reviews about this movie. I don't really know why I didn't so get anything you're saying sexual there's more than that. There's more than that, yeah, yeah. Okay. If you scroll through Letterbox, you know, and, and you go to Batman Under the Red Hood and scroll through Letterbox, you're going to see some weird shit. Those are the two that I found the funniest. I think. I mean, that that fucking you know things that Jason Todd can do that Batman can't. Number one, eat pussy. That's it. Well, I don't even I, know where you fucking get that from. This movie, bro. <laughs> no, there's. I don't. If anything, all we know about Jason Todd in this movie is that he probably kills pussy <laughs> he mur- murders it um okay yes i'm glad you clarified because i was about to come back at you and i i was gonna say do you mean he slays pussy <laughs> oh he slay no i mean he's a murderer he is a murderer he is a murderer <laughs> well i guess you know um going now into under the red hood in in great detail uh i mean the thing that we're here to talk about the thing that i think we should focus on the most is the animation I mean, I already mentioned that, you know, it's very um, uh, animated a lot like um, the old school Batman animated show. I think that's just kind of what was known from DC at this point in time in 2010, that type of stuff. But let's get into it. The thing that we both mentioned, the thing that rises or makes this movie rise, makes animation rise. I am in love with the fight scenes in this movie. Like, I am utterly in awe of the fight scenes in this movie. There's moments we're going to mention and stuff like that. But I think, just in general, animating combat allows for a lot more to be done than in live action. I think specifically because of the editing. I think the editing is the biggest problem. In live action, you're, you don't have two real people punching each other, you know? that Well, that does happen sometimes. I mean, you know, the whole, like, there's a... I think Dolph Lundgren punched out Sylvester Stallone because he said, hit me as hard as you can, you know, on one of the set of Rocky 17 or some shit like that. But whenever you go to see a movie, even a live-action Batman, they're not punching each other. They're doing fake punches. They're doing light punches. It's through the magic of editing and sound that it makes it seem like a real fight scene. And I always think something's lost because of that movie magic. This movie... Dude, there are so many instances. It's when Batman's fighting Amazo at the beginning. It's when Batman's fighting the Red Hood. It's when Batman's fighting, you know, the like when he's punching anybody, the uh, fearsome hand of four and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There are so many moments where the camera just basically, the camera, of course, just basically locks down and you're watching an uncut fight scene for like 25 seconds. And yeah. it is beautiful. I understand where everybody is. I understand why one motion leads into the next. I understand when somebody gets the upper hand, why they got the upper hand. It's it's like I imagine, Ben, you something you have a lot more experience than I do with, like fighting in real life. Like when you like I know boxers who watch boxing fights and they can critique it in a way that I can't because I have no experience with it. But here, I'm watching it, and I'm like, I kind of get it. I understand the flow of this motion. 
And I think that is something that live action's basically never gotten right. I don't know if I've really ever seen a live action fight scene that I've thought was as good as, you know, some of the fight scenes in this animated movie. What do you think about that? Uh, I think the closest I've ever seen to, like, really good live-action fight scenes have been, like, Jet Li has done some really good live-action fight scenes. Sure. And, like, even Jackie Chan has. Uh, and then, like, even, like, in the movie Never Back Down, you get some like, good MMA stuff. Uh, but in your general, just, like, whatever fight scenes, absolutely. Um, you know, if, if the movie isn't, like, about fighting, it's probably going to suck. Yes. Um, to, re- to relate it to Batman, um, something that we've, we haven't talked about on this podcast, but take something like the Christopher Nolan trilogy. Um, you know, every time Batman has to do close-up combat with, like, goons of the Joker or, you know, goons of the Scarecrow, goons of Bane, because that's whoever fucking Christian Bale fights in the Nolan movies, there's the whole thing where it's like you see somebody throw a punch, there'll be an edit, and you'll see like somebody take the punch. You'll see Batman recoil. He'll come back, throw another punch, edit. You know, there's clearly a lot of quick camera cuts, and every single one of those camera cuts is emphasized by like a noise, like a sound beat, not like a punch noise, but like the score going like dump, bump, bump, dump. You know, like the score is almost matched to their fighting rhythm. And I know people like that. I like that. Don't get me wrong, but that's a crutch. Compared to this, where you can just watch an unadulterated, uncut, you know, free-flowing fight scene, I think the use of sound and editing is clearly a crutch. It could clearly be done better. Uh, certainly. I mean, and that's uh, that's one of the things that animation, I think, will always have up on live action, is that uh, for live action, like, you're not going to get to see somebody's face deform from getting hit <laughs> Yep. Uh, without them getting hurt, whereas in uh, in animation that's almost every punch you get is, is accentuated by somebody's jaw like breaking essentially although it doesn't stay broken because it's animation and there are no consequences like when <laughs> batman gets thrown into uh one of those like what are they the freight containers yep uh by a mazo it's like oh that kills a regular person you know but um but it's animation so we don't we, we just kind of leave that at the door and uh and let ourselves get immersed in the well animated fights where where as you've said you know you can see everything that's going on but even more so i think you get like this kind of guttural reaction to what's going on because you get to see the the deformation of the person that's getting hit yes Um, yes and you know i i i don't know that it's in it's not in this movie but i can even think of like animation where you see somebody throw a punch and you know like their wrist breaks or something like that it's like you can't do that nearly as well in live action as you can with animation because Obviously, there's no one to get hurt in the animation. Yep, and uh, that's a good point. You know that the whole wrist breaking thing, any bones breaking. What is yes. live action done in the past? They've re- relied on like the CGI. Like you, Ben, you and I've seen it. The audience, the cinema audience, has seen it. Somebody like punches something, and as they make contact, slow mo starts to happen. Yep. Cut to X-ray. See the bones cracking. You know oh, that type of thing. All over the X-Men or not yeah. the X-Men, the Mortal Kombat movies. Yeah, Mortal Kombat. Yes, absolutely. And here it's just like no. Even it. It's not a crutch here. I think in animation, these sound effects are an additive rather than a crutch type of thing. Where right. when you hear that crunch, you hear that thwack. You know, in the animation, and you see that like full motion movement. You go shit bro i felt that type of thing you know oh, yeah it's, yeah that shit hurt yeah it's the thing where it's like 
you see someone get kicked in the nuts and somebody says every guy in a five mile radius felt that it's it's like when i watch this movie and i see someone get like cracked upside the head by batman i'm like oh boy that must have hurt you know <laughs> um so there's something else i want to mention about uh one of the fight scenes against the the fearsome hand of four or whatever yes. great fight uh, scene. great fucking fight scene yeah at some point a car is thrown yes and Batman goes through the passenger window and out the driver's side window as it is flipping. <laughs> yes. Like it is being thrown at him and he enters and then exits the vehicle as it's flipping. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just if you're doing that in live action, you can't make it look this smooth. I'm actually so glad you brought that up because, you know, the the thing that when that happened, I noticed it. I noticed it like after the fact. I want to be clear about this, that, like, the fight scene is so well choreographed, so fast-paced, yet I'm still able to follow everything. It took me, like, a second to catch up and what, what, what hold on, what did Batman just do? That type of thing. Mm-hmm. Because in the moment, I didn't think about it. It flowed so well from the previous, like, sh- animated shots up to it, flows so well with the animated shots following it, that I only think about it, I think, Ben, in the same way you think about it, where you go, what the like what like that's not gonna happen like batman's not that good you know you know what other movies do this like i thought like live action fast and furious can't you imagine fucking vin diesel doing the same thing and in the moment when they slow they do full slow-mo they'd have some like great like you know probably in the background some like indian choral you know some fucking music like that and you'd be like this is too ridiculous you know right but animation I, I thought about it late, and I think that and that's the benefit of animation that, you know, they're doing something so off the wall, but they've tricked you into not realizing it's not realistic. Not that it should or should not be realistic. They've tricked you into into thinking, yeah, this is just is the literal logical next step. Well, and as, as you mentioned, you know, the, the metaphorical camera, the view pane, uh, it just follows Batman through the car. Yep. Like it doesn't, you know, there, there's no hiccup, there's no cut. It's like we. I, I, I'm sorry. That's not entirely right. There's. A, I think there's a cut from from the perspective of the guy throwing the car to Batman's perspective. Yes. Yes. But then the camera follows him smoothly in one clean shot through the car. And obviously, it's not a camera. It's animated, so they have an easier time doing that. But again, that's the point of this: is that animation opens up that door. Exactly. That, that live action didn't. And that. And that's or the what, other thing. Another thing that I think we're going to talk about a lot in this whole month is that you know. When when you do the the physical camera is limited, of course, you know the live action camera is limited, and I think everybody understands that. When they do things this crazy in animation, like you know, show us shots as characters are breaking through things, show us shots, you know, as I'm sure we'll get to in some of the um, the foreign animation, show us shots that are almost incomprehensible in uh, Rob's favorite stop motion movie of all time, which I don't even know why I'm hiding. I've talked about it so much. They're not doing it because it's like, oh, they can, you know? It's like right. that gives the viewer a different sense of experience than damn near every movie they've ever seen, you know? Like, it, it right. puts you in the mindset, it makes you understand what's going on, it makes you feel a different way than if you just saw, you know, once again, I, maybe not to use Fast and the Furious, I'm sure it's happened in a damn X-Men movie, when you get just like a wide shot of something flipping over and someone going over it or under it or through it or whatever, you just go, oh, okay, I know what happened, I know, I get what just happened there. But in this case, as you follow Batman through that motion... It's like you're on a roller coaster. It's like you're actually VR experiencing it. And why 
why, why wouldn't you want that in your movie, right? 100%. Um, you know, I, I think I think what you said there is perfect. It's um, in, in live action movies, they rely and they do great tricks for it, but they rely on the brain mm -hmm. to close the activity um, because there's just some things they can't do. Um, and you don't have to rely on the brain here. And that's don't get me wrong. There are some things that are better left to the imagination. Uh, I would say this is not one of them. Absolutely. Ab especially when it comes to action. I think um, putting the brain more in the feeling of motion is, you know, of utmost importance. I think that's a lot of the reason why I'm so bored by me personally. I'm so bored by a lot of action stuff because it's just a sure. blur of nonsense to me. You know, don't get me wrong. There's action that I love, which we I'm sure we've talked about a bunch of times. But, it's you know, the opening I think of Winter Soldier, I think, is one that we both were very uh, turned off. Yes. By. Yes. We were just like, what the fuck are we doing, man? Like, why are like, we watching this? You right, know? There's, well, it, it doesn't help that that movie opens with no context to that fight scene. But you're just like, should, the camera's just cutting back and forth. His shield's flying everywhere. Like, I don't have any idea what's going on it comes or who across, I should be rooting it for. It comes across more as a flip book rather than it does an actual footing in that experience. Right. It's, and, yeah, it's not smooth. Exactly. And animation gives you, like I said, in these fights, don't get... Like, don't misconstrue us. If you have not seen Under the Red Hood, don't think we're saying, like, oh, the whole fight is one continuous shot. That's not what we're saying. There's a lot of cuts and edits because there's a lot of people fighting. There's a lot of different orientations that are used in the camera angles, that type of thing. But just the fact that they let, like, hand-to-hand -hand fight scenes breathe for 25 seconds. Hell, even 10 seconds. That lets the brain acclimate to a sense of motion that you don't get when it's just like... Okay, Tony Stark's flying, or Iron Man's flying. Oh, then it's Tony Stark's head looking at his suit. Then it's, like, Winter Soldier on the ground. Then it's, you know, Vision is over here. Like, the edits in a Marvel movie don't even last 10 seconds. They don't even last two seconds. And right. that makes it, like I said, like a flip book. And animation lets you understand, lets you breathe. And, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. The Marvel movies have their own flair. I think the flip book idea is kind of secondary to the idea of lore and intention of those movies. Right. But here, like, this is a self-contained Batman film, animated Batman film. You need to feel invested in it for it to work as well as it does. And watching these moments play out in long stretches of, you know, 10, 20 seconds makes you acclimate to them better. And then, I mean, I mean that's well, just, like, the way to do action. To that point, like, there's actually a... a a moment when Batman, so in that fight of the, the, was the hand of the fearsome four? Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Fearsome hand of four. Yeah. The fearsome four hand job or yeah, whatever. The, the, uh, the, the spirit stallion of the Cimarron. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, there's uh there's a moment where Jason Todd says something like, damn, I miss watching you work. Yeah. And it, it hits so hard because we just watched Batman work. We understand a, what he just did. Yes, yes. Yeah. So whenever Jason Todd says that, you're just like, yeah, I bet you do. I bet you do miss being a part of this at all times, you know? And, and not only do we agree with that from an audience perspective, I think also there's a very important thing of orientation in animated combat that we don't get in live-action combat because of the editing. I know I've watched a shitload of movies, action-oriented, where it just reaches a point like maybe not even flip book status like I would call the Marvel movies, it reaches a point where I'm just like, I don't know where anybody is in relation to each other. 
I don't know mm-hmm. who's fighting who. I mean, you know, one of the best examples I've used is, um, or one of the best examples I go to, I should say, is um, the um, when all the Ben, you you know the everybody's gonna yell at me oh, when all the zombies attack the castle in the last season of Game of Thrones. You know. Um, the battle for Winterfell is what my memory is pulling back up. I'm sorry if I'm getting that wrong. That is incomprehensibly mis like ununderstandable, ununderstandable type of thing. Like mm. you have whole scenes where Nikolai Coster Waldo will be like fighting a bunch of zombies with a sword. It'll cut to somebody else, and you're just like, okay, this is just another part of the battle. And then like it'll cut to three other people, and then like one of the other characters we already cut to will jump in and f- and save them. And I'm like. This is not okay. Like, I don't know where any of these people are. I don't understand the orientation, the spatial orientation. I think that's what animation, like, allows for better. Because in live action, you have a whole problem, well, especially Game of Thrones, you have a whole problem with blocking. Like, you have a whole problem with CGI. Like, how do you put all those CG bad guys in and make sure everything is is where they need to be in the background? In animation, I think it's the whole sense of it's like, oh, no. Okay, here's Batman fighting the fearsome hand of four. Let's just draw in the red hood in the background, you know? Here's yeah. clearly he's watching Batman work. And hell, let's even take it a step further. Let's draw in the background. The red hood f- is fighting another member of the fearsome hand of four. So we're right. showing two different, both in focus. We're going to talk a lot about how animation can focus pull infinitely better than live action in some later episodes in this series. We understand two fucking planes of what's going on, and then when the scene that you mentioned, I miss watching you work, ties them together, your brain just misses that without a beat. That's where animation kind of steps up the human brain activity and then makes you fill in the gaps in a way that live action just fundamentally cannot. Because live action has to do so much more work just to put things to a frame. Yeah, I mean, 100%. Like, even having, you know, let, let's say like Black Panther and Winter Soldier in the same shot, the, the way you just mentioned with, with Batman and yeah, the Red Hood, yeah. it would be so cramped that they wouldn't have room to get the camera in for the other angles that they would have to they would have to like set and reset. And then you end up with issues where it's like, oh, that object isn't where it's supposed to be um, because we had to move everything to get this other angle. Yeah. And it's like that's. You know, that's just that's inherently not a problem with animation. And obviously, this is something that makes animation easier to achieve uh, to some degree. But it is also like, I don't know, it, it's something I, th- I think worth mentioning in how animation can do the job better. Yes, absolutely. I that that exactly right. That's why I'm so excited we get to kick off the series with this. I mean, also on that same point, I think when you just said they're easier to achieve you were talking about it's easier to achieve that for the audience, right? Uh, it's easier to achieve physically for the uh, for the people that are making the uh, the animation. Like it's easier for them to put things too close together or close enough together to oh, work yes, than it yes, is yes. for people that are filming in a, a live action movie. It's easier for the audience to understand. It's easier for the animators to put together. Um, but what I was getting at, I was trying to transition into. Um, it might be easier for them to do it. It might be easier for or to achieve that. It might be easier for the audience to understand. But the actual drawing of that is a lot oh fucking harder. <laughs> sure. Yes, of course. That's what I was getting at. Yeah. And dude, here's one of the things that that blew me away. And of course, there's CG elements in this movie. It was 2010. There's some noticeable CG elements which I want to highlight, you know, in the in the big like bat 
uh, bat plane chase scene and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. a lot of this movie, from what I can tell by looking at it, from what I found in my research, is hand-drawn. And that's fucking insane that this is as clean... Like, this is... There was a point at the start of this movie, I think it was the Amazo fight, where I'm like, oh my god, this fucking fight scene is so clean. Like, the animation is so clean. This has to be animated on ones, you know? And then later on in the movie, after I, like, started to watch more of the action, I was like, is this animated on, like, one point... Like, on 0.5s or 0.25s? Like, how does this look this good? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, it, it is that smooth, and it is that smooth throughout the whole movie. Um... And that's I think that's one of the things that originally drew me to this movie is uh, is the animation, um, not not only the art form, which I do love the um, the style that yes. they render the characters in, but also the fluidity of the animation. Absolutely. And and to the point of the fluidity, it was a scene that we brought up before you brought up and I called it the fucking dopest shit because I still think it is kind of the fucking dopest shit, something that would Never, never be able to be done in live action. I compare it to the, um, remember the, um, Miles Morales does the, like, upside-down falling shot in Spider-Verse type of thing, and we talked about on our Patreon, everybody, how it, like, that would look goofy and stupid in live action, you know, that type of thing. Like, the poster shot, I'm I'm not remembering it correctly, because I had to close my eyes for a lot of that movie, because it would, was burning my corneas, unfortunately. Um, the, the thing in this movie, the move where Batman shoots his tether... And the Red Hood turns around in midair and slices it before it becomes taut, as we said. Fucking, even before the movie talks about what happened in that scene, even before, you know, they go back to the Batcave and Nightwing is like, you know, he cut it before it went taut. And Batman says, well, do you know a lot of blades that can cut my lines? That type of thing. Even before that explanation, the audience understands what happens in that scene. It's not like it's a blur of information. It's not like it's a blur of motion. It is so cleanly animated that you get what just happened. You get that Batman just, like, shot a batarang with a line on it, whatever the fuck you want to call it, you know, that type of thing. And the Red Hood was able to realize, turn, shift, do whatever he does. Dude, this is actually, I think, the number one time I am upset that we are an audio podcast. If... I really wish I could put the visual clip of what happens in this scene in. I I really think it is one of the best instances of animating on ones, like I said, possibly animating on even something lower, which I don't think exists. But it is so fucking clean. I I even when I was watching this recording, I like rewound it two times and I was like I was like this is it. This is what I love about animation in Five seconds. (laughs) Sure, sure. Um, And to that end, you know, patrons, if you want to see this live action, if you want to see us do some YouTube shit, we're going to need some of those $200 patrons. (laughs) Or, you know, just a lot of the $5 ones. Um, Yes, but uh, yeah, take either one. I think I I can speak for both of us when I say that we would not be opposed to doing that, but that would take more time and energy. And, uh, and you know, if that's something that, that the audience wants, I, I think you'll have to let us know. Absolutely. Uh, but but so. also on that scene, you know, here, here's the thing. It's this, this is where I think the animation really shines through for me. I don't think I would believe that action, that, like, physical action of the Red Hood, like, cutting that line before he gets caught in it. I don't think I would believe it's the fucking coolest shit 
unless it was animated that cleanly. Like, if it was cheaply animated, if it was put into live action and we had to do, like, editing shit. Because you, you, you get it, Ben, right? In live action, this is what would happen. First shot, Batman shoots his batarang type of thing. Second shot, you know, the, the rope extending, the line extending. Third shot, Red Hood, close-up of the Red Hood's face, turning to realize it. Fourth shot, close-up of the ankle, him cutting the line. We would never get anything that really shows off the full body motion of the Red Hood. I think animation makes that move cool. And I think right there, exhibit, I don't know, I was about to say exhibit A. We're probably at exhibit like like Z at this point, you know, on why animation excels at live action in these instances. Um, Yeah, excels over live action, yes. Yeah, Um, yeah. Yeah, that's like, you know, you mentioned what, four or five shots that we would get there. Uh, they do it in what two in that scene? Batman uh, we get... shoots his line. Oh, the rest we... of the shot, from what I remember, is Red Hood turning. As he turns, the line gets to him, starts wrapping around. It's all one big frame, you know. Him cutting yeah. it. It's all one motion. And like we said, your brain gets it immediately. There's no filling in the gaps. There's no jumping over the gaps or anything like that. Your brain gets it, and then your brain understands. Everything that happens, so when they talk about later, talk about that scene later in the Batcave, you're on board. You know what they're talking about. You know what detective work they're doing. Well, and you also know how impressive it is because you got to see it in its full glory. Yes. Um, and that's, and I think that's the point, you know, that, that uh, Dick Grayson or Nightwing is making there. He's just like, that's not something that you just do that's something you have to be trained exactly to do. and i love that rebuttal from batman where he's like well you know how many blades can cut my equipment you know that type of thing yeah he says something like and the knife and Nightwing's like what about the knife he's like how many knives do you know or how many blades do you know that can cut my line absolutely uh, which which that's like batman's just being like also my lines are the fucking coolest shit yeah and i shouldn't have to tell you and i'm not actually gonna tell you and like that's also I don't know. That's just a nice little flex. Yep. Yep. That's like some classic Batman right there. You know? Um, no, I mean, I mean, were there any other scenes or moments of action you want to talk about? I mean, I think we mentioned Amazo. That's where I really was like, oh, shit. Like, this is going down. Like, this is clean. I mean, like I said, it's got to be animated on ones. I don't think that this – I'm actually really upset, Ben. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to Ben. I'm sorry to the cinema audience. I, I, maybe the internet should be sorry to me. I cannot find a budget for this movie. I do not know okay. how much this movie cost. I know how much it made because this was a straight to DVD and Blu-ray type of release. It made twelve million on that, which is Whoa. really good for like just hey, you, you like Batman? Go watch this shit. You know that type of thing. But yeah, I, no, that's insane. I don't know. They've never released how much it cost. They never released like you know how much profit it made or anything like that. And I wish I knew because I, I, you know, there's a sense of animation and we'll talk about this more as we get to, um, the end of this month where there's two animated movies. Rob really loves that. He knows a lot about in terms of budget and things like that. I think there's a direct correlation between, you know, the money spent and how good your animation looks. And I think that is something once again, we'll probably get to this later on. Live action doesn't have, you know? Like, Ben, you and I have talked about it before. There's a movie, it's like, oh, this movie cost $100 million. And Ben goes, for fucking what? Like, this looks like trash, you know? And, you know, there's movies that live action say, oh, this cost $750,000, like Primer. And you go, yeah, okay, 
and they made the best fucking idea out of that, you know? I think right. animation is, like, direct correlation. Like, usually it's, like, the more money you spend, the better it looks. Because you have to for manpower and stuff like that. I just wish I had that info for this movie. And it just, just seemingly doesn't exist. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I would have to agree that, that it is a direct correlation. Um, obviously, I'm sure there are situations where you could be paying people and not getting the bang for your buck out of it. But for the most part... It, uh, I mean, because I, I don't know if it's still done this way. I I'm, I hope it's not. But there was a time when, uh, you know, they would they would draw like establishing uh, moments or whatever. And then they'd send that off to a mm. studio somewhere. Yeah. And yeah. and have the intermediate scenes drawn by people who are not even really involved in the project who are just good at drawing. Yeah. Yeah. It really isn't done that way anymore. I mean, Thank God. Uh, be- crazy. I think most, I think unfortunately because most animation these days is CGI and, uh, they just basically render those, um, those in between frames. We, we talked about this back. Everybody go check out our Henry Selick series where Rob gushes over stop motion. Uh, of course, a very important form of animation, the whole idea of keyframes versus in-betweening, that type of thing. Ben, you're absolutely right. We talked about that on the Spider-Man, the animated series episode, or animated Spider-Man episode because we covered a few different series, where that's where they did it, where they were basically like, hey, here's the big points you got to hit. Can you in-between for us? And that, of course, led to one of my favorite stories of all time is that when the New York team animated the keyframes or drew the keyframes, they sent them out to the team on the uh, West Coast and the West Coast animated the Pan Am building that didn't exist anymore in New York. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and, and that I think that exemplifies what you were talking about, that it's like it's stupid how disconnected those things are. When they are connected, you get something like this. You get something like a Hayao Miyazaki movie where everything's smooth. You get something like anime, if I might be so bold. Um, but you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I You know, okay, so... Any other, like, combat stuff you wanted to mention? I don't want to skip over any of the gloriousness of the combat in this movie. Were there any other, like, combat scenes or clean animation you wanted to mention? Because I think the next big thing we have to talk about is the CG elements of this movie. Um, I, I think, you know, just if for the cinema audience, if you're out here watching this, uh, you know, if you're going to go watch this movie again because of us, like, pay special attention to the combat, but yes. also to the chase scenes. Like you're gonna see things uh, in terms of like fluidity and, and you know stream of the camera that you're just not gonna get anywhere else mm-hmm. uh, without all the cutscenes, and I I think that we should uh, pay attention to and like appreciate that for what it is while we're watching these movies. You actually reminded me of something that I didn't put in my notes, but I I thought of earlier today. I, ah, God, I don't, I don't want this to lead us down too big of a rabbit hole, but maybe this is something I want to pose to you and you can think about, and we touch on it later in our animation series. Do you think the fluidity of animation and how much we love it is a big reason about why we loved Birdman so much? Because remember how Birdman's one big shot? Well, one big shot type of thing. Do you think that the fluidity of the live action of Birdman was, and our love for it is due to our love of the fluidity of animation? I I will think about that. Okay, think about that. Think about that. Um, I'm not saying I have to rewatch Birdman. I actually kind of really want to do rewatch Birdman because I've been watching all the Inaritu movies. Um, but uh, I, I had that thought earlier today, and I'm glad you reminded me of it. So, now, here's the other thing about the animation. It's not all combat. There's a lot of other stuff going on. I don't think you and I, Ben, unless you have moments you want to you know hit on or recognize, the, there's not too much about the um, non-action scenes. So, you know, 
Batman and Ra's al Ghul talking, Batman and Alfred talking, like um, just moments where there's exposition or something like that, like the storytelling moments. Those are great. You said you love the style. I love the style. If you want to hit on anything in there, let me know. But I think the next biggest thing to talk about with animation is the use of CG. And I think the CG elements are quite noticeable in this movie. I think they come up most in the um, chase scenes when Batman is in a vehicle. So, you know, we get a scene where Batman is um, driving the, the Batplane. You know, we basically see him going up and down bridges and stuff like that. We get actually some wide shots of Gotham where there's like a blimp flying in, in across the screen, that type of thing. The blimp is very clearly CG. Did, did the CG elements... Well, I was about to ask you, did you notice them? I, I think you might have to be... Missing the point of everything else we've talked about so far with animation to not notice them. What do you think about the inclusion of those clearly CG elements? The CG always kind of takes me out of the movie a little bit. Uh, just because of, you know, it, it does feel a little different than, than the rest of the stuff. Oh, sure, um, sure. But uh, I, I can't blame them for it, I guess. Like, I get the difficulty of what they're dealing with. So I, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I guess I don't have too many thoughts on the CGI. I'm curious okay. what, what your take is. I so my my big takeaway was I don't think they're out of place. I oh, they're noticeable. I'm I'm never going to deny that. You can clearly see them. It's like you know back in uh, the days of like Pokemon SpongeBob from the early 2000s, like the cell animation where you know they'd have the background and then they'd have the characters in front. And you know when the scene starts, you can clearly tell what the characters are going to interact with because it looks different. That type of thing. Yeah. Um, like that's been going on forever. It's noticeable, but I don't think it's out of place. The reason I don't think it's out of place is because it's used in this movie very specifically to heighten the scenes where it's needed. Especially in that first chase scene, I think the Batplane scene that I mentioned, um, between Batman and the Red Hood. They use CG because they need to. I think that it is necessary because if it wasn't used, and I, I did take this kind of thought experiment. I said, well, what if they didn't use CG? This would all be hand-drawn. I think this would have been a lot of reusing of assets, you know, reusing backgrounds, things like that. I think that would have made this movie, or these scenes where CGI is used, come across as much jankier and outdated. I think using CG, even though noticeable, elevates this movie to some extent. I don't think it takes away from the experience of the movie. I don't think it, you know, diminishes the actual hand-drawn aspects that we see and we've already talked about. I think it's actually important. Um, I, I think that's the best way I could say it, is that without it, it would seem lesser type of thing, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I think, I think I'm picking up what you're putting down. Don't we want to see Batman, when he's in his bat plan, don't we want to see him, you know... He's flying above Gotham. Oh, shit, there's a blimp. He's got to duck down, go under a bridge, you know, back up again to chase the Red Hood. Don't we want to see those elements? If we didn't have the CG, the, the studio wouldn't have paid, my assumption once again, the studio wouldn't have paid to, like, animate all that shit. That would cost so fucking much, you know? Because every frame you have to animate these cars, not only because we get a whole city view, not only these cars, you know, above or below Batman based on his position in the Batplane, but also moving in real time because the city is alive. I think the CGI gives 
Gotham a feeling of being alive, that it's not just Batman flying through this, you know, maze of structure or anything like that. He actually has to be careful to not blow into this bridge or not, you know, cut off this traffic because these are real people. We have, you know, a real blimp, a a real, like, set of skyscrapers, and the CGI just gives it that more reality. I was about to say realism. That's not right. Reality in the sense that, you know, Batman is protecting a city. Fun fact... There's only, like, 25 blimps in the world, and only, like, 12 of them are operational, and two of them apparently are in Gotham. I was, I, was I, I actually have that written down. I think it's, like, 10 minutes into this movie, maybe 15. We get an establishing shot of Gotham, and a blimp is flying by. And I, my note is, where the fuck is Gotham that they're still using blimps? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, no, I mean, your point about, you know, the, the livelihood or, or the kind of hustle and bustle of the city that, that the CGI lends to animation. I mean, you're, yeah. you're, I, I'm sure that you're right about that, that they, that they wouldn't take the time to do it. Or, well, I, not to say that they wouldn't take the time to do it well, or they couldn't take the time to do it well, but if they took the time to do it well, that it would, that it would cost, that it would be a heavy, a exactly. heavy burden for, exactly. for the movie where it's like, instead of doing that, let's save that money and put it into these scenes where we can really use the animation, the hand-drawn animation to its, to its fullest. 100%. And let's, let's kind of outsource this stuff where it's like, okay, we get the cities moving. It, it's going to look a little different, but we're in, we're in like a bat plane chase. Bruce Wayne's about to, about to tuck the wings and go through a tunnel in yeah. his plane. Um, you know, let's, we can, we can, um, kind of chalk up the the different feeling to to the fact that we're actually doing something different than we're, we've been doing for the rest of the movie. I think, once again, this goes back to what we were saying about how animation provides you more. And um, when, when you're given, when the brain is given more, so you have to fill in less gaps, it allows your experience to flourish. I think that's been our whole thesis of this episode so far, or, or of the discussion of this movie. And, you know, to compare this to um, what the 1990s um, Batman the Animated Series did, in the opening credits, they show a blimp. They show a GCPD, you know, Gotham City Police Department blimp, and they show that that blimp has a spotlight. Any time in one of those episodes when, like, you know, a criminal is being caught or, like, uh, the, like the, um, the Riddler's going on a diamond heist, you know, that type of thing, they never show the fucking blimp again. You know what they show? They show the big spotlight from the sky. And your brain knows to fill in the gap that, oh, that's right. the blimp with the spotlight that I saw in the opening credits, you know, which in the opening credits they animated once and reused for four fucking seasons, you know? Sure. Here... They say, no, why, why not? Show them the blimp, show them the animation of the spotlight, because they do have spotlights in this movie. But they, they fill in more of the gaps for your brain that let you ride with that experience more. And I think that's what we're, we're both saying, is that it's like the less work your brain has to do to decipher what's going on in the scene, the more work your brain can do to enjoy it. Sure. Yeah, to, to enjoy it and to think about and digest it as yes, well. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the CG is exactly to that point, is that they don't want your brain to spend energy saying like, oh, 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 no, that's okay, that's the bat plane, that's the one, oh, the, under the bridge, oh, oh, under the bridge they showed like a lit up sign that we saw earlier. They don't want any of that. They want you to be in that emotional 
not emotional, motional, if that's the right word, motive, I don't know. They want you to feel the motion of the bat plane, like we said with the fighting scene. I think they're using the CGI to create the same sense in being with Batman flying through the streets of Gotham as they are using in the fight scenes by being with Batman fighting the Red Hood one-on-one. Yeah. It's so, it's, well it's too good. It's too fucking good, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so animation, okay. That I we said a lot about animation. We're gonna say more of this series. There's a lot of different types of animation, of course. Combat, it's so fucking great in this movie. Like you said, Ben, I cannot reiterate that enough. Anybody in the audience, if you watched it for this recording, if you're watching it uh, after this recording, you know, do it. Look at what we were pointing out. Try and understand where we're coming from because it's something that you know people don't you know think about. I think I think they see animation. Maybe, here's a question. Do you think people's brains are too trained for live action that they don't think about these aspects of animation? Um, what do you mean? So, my, my thought is, you know, they're too well accustomed to the language of live action cinema in terms of edits, in terms of, you know, the unrealisticness, the movie magic, that they don't want to look for these these higher elements of animation. I, I can't say... I. I think that it has more to do with, like, in terms of, of like, reasons that people dislike animation or, or, or think down on animation or something like that or maybe even fail to appreciate it. I think it has more to do with the preconceived notions that they walk into the movie with. That's fair. As That's opposed fair. to what they're used to seeing. Um, and, you know, I, is that is that the best no i mean obviously we we get stuck in our preconceived notions and then that prevents us from kind of experiencing the world as it is um but at at the end of the day no i I don't think it's that i don't think it's that people are like programmed to not to not enjoy this as much as is they're they're programmed to like not experience it gotcha gotcha that was a question i just kind of thought of in the moment maybe when i edit this before we record our next episode i'll be able to expand on that because i think you know that'll come into play specifically when we get to the foreign stuff you know how you know the foreign animators are you know trying to specifically excel on live action and things like that um Mm -hmm. but yeah yeah great good answer um i think the next thing i wanted to hit um, oh, unless there's anything else about the animation style, you know, fluidity, um, anything you want to hit on, you know, Ben, please bring it up, that type of thing, because this is this is the one thing where it's like, you know, everybody in the cinema audience, it's, um, you know, this is not a series where, you know, I strong armed or Ben's I strong armed Ben or Ben strong armed me into talking about it. This is something we've want to talk about for a while and that we've talked about on our own, like outside of the podcast type of thing. We love animation. Um but I think, you know, the next thing I wanted, to, I wanted to bring up is what we said was almost the next most important part of animation, the voice acting. Uh, yeah, before we get oh, over there, I, sure, I just pulled sure. up this, this Batplane chasing on, on YouTube so oh, I could nice. watch the CGI again. Yeah, yeah. Um, it definitely comes across as, like, boxy and, and like, separated from the rest, of the, uh, the rest of the scene sure. a little bit uh, with the cars and the way they're moving around and things like that. So... Like, I think, honestly, if anything, like, this could be something that turns people off from this animation um, is is the, the kind of juxtaposition between this scene and, you know, the any scene where we get where people are just talking or or even the fight scenes. Um, but that being said, I, I mean, I think 
it get like you said, it gives Gotham a sense of being alive. Yes, um, yes. And and what we would have seen in in oh, like something where they didn't have access to the CGI is we would have seen cars in the background or off in the distance. Like they wouldn't have been in the scene with with our characters. Yeah, um, you would have been able and, to I, I immediately identify the two planes of animation. Right, and that's yeah. So I so I. While I, it's not ideal to have the ju- juxtaposition of those two, um, I, I think that if you want the city to feel alive and you and you don't want them to just be moving around still figures, mm-hmm. then um, yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of what you're stuck with, um, and that just comes down to the fact that this is a laborious thing to do. Yeah. Um, like I think I think we should really hit that hard. Like this isn't uh, a laziness or, or something like that. This is this is a cost cutting measure because hand drawing these frames is hard. I want to let you in right now at the same time as our cinema audience. Well, I guess not the same time because we record this. We don't record these live. Um, for our Hayao Miyazaki episode, I am really tempted to say we're going to discuss whatever movie we eventually you know end on type of thing. But I'm also really tempted to say that, you know, I'm, I'm going to do my best to make you watch the documentary about Hayao Miyazaki. Because Hayao Miyazaki is the actual person who goes, like, you need to draw every single frame of a wave crashing on the shore type of thing. Oh, boy. Like, he is, he's like, no, he, well... He has CG elements, and don't worry, everybody, we'll get into this more later on, that type of thing. But he is the one who's, like, you know, painstaking, like, carpal tunnel, hand-drawing every single element of anything he wants to animate type of thing. Um, and it's fascinating. It, don't get me wrong. You're right. The laboriousness of what you said is what I'm getting at. And sure. to know that someone in, that, in our world like that exists is fantastic to me. <laughs> It sounds like he's a gift. He is a gift. He is a gift. Oh, okay. Ben, you and I are going to talk about this when we get to Hayao Miyazaki again, but I have to just retell this story because I fucking love it. Um, Hayao Miyazaki, of course, is very famous for starting Studio Ghibli. Of course, he's very famous for Spirited Away, but more importantly, I think he's more famous or was back in the day for my neighbor Totoro. And for years, people would say to him, why don't we merchandise this? And he said in the least American way possible, I don't want merchandise of my product to exist because it would diminish my product. It took, I think, maybe 10, 15 years after My Neighbor Totoro came out for somebody to come to him with such care and emotion about their little plush Totoro doll that he finally said, okay, we will give you the rights to sell this to people. But... We can never make, as a company, we can never make more than X amount of dollars in a year, or yen, you know you know what the fuck I mean, X amount of dollars in a year from merchandising. Wow. He literally capped, he's like, we can never sell more merchandise than this amount type of thing. And then, a few years later, when he found out his team made more money or was selling more merchandise than the amount that he specified... He fired them all. Whoa. <laughs> Dude, it is one of he is one of the most fantastically amazing, interesting figures. He's like the closest thing we have to a dragon in the real world, you know? <laughs> a reverse <laughs> dragon, I guess, because dragons, you know, 
hoard money and hoard gold, and he seems to be almost the opposite. Um, yeah, Ben, maybe if if we don't actually do both of those, the documentary and the movie for the main feed, we might have to do on the Patreon the documentary because that you would be fascinated by this man. I am intrigued. Uh, okay, right on. We're setting the stage, everybody. Okay. If that was the last thing you had to say about the animation, which is a great point, um, I think something that goes hand-in-hand with animated movies, voice acting. I I think this is something that, um, you know, Zach always makes fun of me. I love talking about voice actors. I love not only talking about their performances, but I love when they show up in live action, and Zach always rolls his eyes and sighs. You know, that's a common trope on this podcast. We already talked about John DiMaggio. I think we're done with him. He's he's God, basically, in terms of voice acting uh, strata, that type of thing. But dude, another thing I didn't remember about this movie, the the cast is stacked. Bruce Greenwood plays Batman, who Ben, I I actually tried to rack my brain, well, I racked the IMDB page of Bruce Greenwood for where you know him from. He's the president from the National Treasure movies. Oh, isn't he also in like uh, one of those NCIS or... CSI Miami or... Probably. He's been in a lot. I, I kind of think right now you might be thinking of Mark Harmon, but, um, uh, you know... Oh, well, yeah, they do look kind of Okay, yeah, they, they actually do. That's why I said it. But Bruce Greenwood, he's a great Batman. I like him in this role. I'm just going to run through him, and we could talk about him more if you want. Jensen Ackles, best known to the universe as Dean Winchester from Supernatural, like Mr. 350 episodes of Supernatural. He's a great Red Hood. I mean, Jason Isaacs plays Ra's al Ghul. Jason Isaacs, best known as Lucius Malfoy from the Harry Potter movies. Uh, Gary Cole as Commissioner Gordon in one scene of this movie, best known as the boss from Office Space. I mean, we get a lot of cash that's, you know, um, famous, um, you know, uh, voice actors. Phil Lamar, Kevin Michael Richardson, um, TV actors like Wade Williams, Kelly Who, Fred Tashatori, that type of thing. But I think the one that I really want to pick your brain on, Ben, Neil Patrick Harris as Nightwing. I was going to say, you've gone through this whole list and you haven't said Neil Patrick Harris. I know. I had to save him. I had to save him for the end because, Ben, I know you and I, we've talked to NPH before. We've talked about him in terms of, uh, I think, way back when we first knew each other. Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, of course. Um, I have always never been a fan. That Well, you know what I mean, audience. I've never always been a fan. I've not usually been a fan of Neil Patrick Harris. I think How I Met Your Mother is... I don't really like sitcoms. And Ben, I know you like How I... You love How I Met Your Mother, from what I remember. That type of thing. Um, Neil Patrick Harris, Harold and Kumar movies, yeah, he's kind of fine in them, whatever. I've never loved him. I've never loved Neil Patrick Harris in a role until The Matrix Resurrections, The Matrix 4. He's doing something unbelievable in that movie. Here's my take on NPH in this movie as Nightwing, of course. He sucks, dude. You can tell (laughs) he's Neil Patrick Harris the moment he has a line. He's not doing anything to his voice. I don't know how they got him for this movie. I don't know if he was, like, a fan of Batman. I don't know if they, like, Judd Winnick and the director, um, Brad Vietti, was, like, a fan of him, and they got him. But, dude, it seems like he was check-in, check-out, get my lines done in a day, It seems so disjointed. I really disliked him in this movie. What did you think, though? Because I know you have have a little more um, uh, appreciation for NPH than I do. I I say that because of How I Met Your Mother, but, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I wouldn't say that I, like, necessarily like NPH. 
um, at, you know, outside of, um, what am I trying to say? Um, I, I do like how I met your mother, but I wouldn't say that like, I'm a huge fan of NPH because of that. Okay. I, I, okay. I like his character and stuff, you know, in that show. Um, but that's kind of in a vacuum, I guess, if, if you will, uh, for me when it comes to other NPH stuff. Uh, I mean, Dr. Horrible sing along blog. I didn't, I definitely enjoy that. Uh, but he, I, is, he is good in that. I will give you that. I think that's less of a voice performance and more of a physical performance. Like, yeah, he, yeah. Ha- he has a lot of motion in that short movie, whatever the fuck you want to call it, that type of thing. <laughs> right. It's um, I, I guess you would call it a movie. I don't I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, in, in this, like you're totally right in that his voice. He, he is Neil Patrick Harris. Like it's Neil Patrick Harris yeah. as Nightwing, not not Nightwing. Um, and Dude, that's the moment that's a little disappointing. Exactly. And I think the most disappointment for me came on the sense when, you know, Batman says something to him like, can't you be quiet? And he goes, I'm talkative. It's part of my charm. And I was like, oh, my God, Neil Patrick Harris like that. If you just showed me that clip out of context, I would be like, they didn't get like Neil Patrick Harris to do that voice actor. This is like a dubbed meme or something like that, you know? Yeah, sure. And I was just so against that, you know, not that Nightwing's a huge part of this movie. I think Nightwing is important. You know, the relationships of Batman with his protégés is important to this movie. But Mm. it pulled me out. That's the thing. It pulled me out. With everything we said about how the animation pulls us in and almost is like fucking quicksand that won't let us go, this is Neil Patrick Harris's voice performance was the thing that I was like, I can't overlook this in this movie. Sure. Well, and that's, um, you know, the, the, the analogy for live action is, is anytime you get a bad performance or a dead performance or Kristen Stewart in your movie, um, <laughs> you, nice. you know, you're, you're nice. going to have, <laughs> uh, you're going to have that, that same kind of thing where it's like, this really removes me from the story. And unfortunately, um, and, and unfortunately they probably paid way too much for Neil Patrick Harris yeah, yeah. Uh, to do that. And, and then for him to just be himself as opposed to actually giving Dick Grayson a character. Um, but then there's also some things that were like in terms of writing, like the um, thing about him saying he's talkative, it's part of his charm. Um, that's, that's not my Dick Grayson. Oh, my Dick okay. Grayson knows how, when to be quiet. Uh, my Dick Grayson is a stealthy motherfucker. Uh, specifically, I'm a huge fan of the Young Justice portrayal of Dick Grayson. Yes, yes. I know you love uh, Young Justice. I think we mentioned it a few times that we've watched some Young Justice before, which is a great show. Yeah. Great show, great animation. All the things we've raved about this apply. But but yeah, so like, there's that that kind of stuff that's just like out of character where that's the writing, not necessarily the, the uh, voice actor. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Neil Patrick Harris isn't... He's not doing voice acting. Um. At least, I mean, I'm I with you. I, 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 I actually do think. Well, well, I did write down. I think there is something to his cadence that lends, like when he when he's in motion and fighting and speaking a lot. Like his cadence actually does lend to the sense of somebody who is in motion, like out of breath type of thing. You know, maybe that's the worst way to put it. Which is good. He should be doing that. It's not like we're just hearing somebody read the lines. Could you imagine, you know, if like he was like punching somebody and fighting a Mazo with Batman, and then, you know, he was just very full of wind talking at the same time? I do think there is some cadence to that, but 
at the same time, I don't think there's enough transformative notion of his voice, if that makes sense. Well, and yeah, and I wanted to actually, after I said it, I kind of wanted to pick your brain about it. It's like, do you have to be putting on like an accent to be voice acting? Surely not. No, no, not not of not at all. Not, but um, because because I think there are voice actors that basically just do their voice every time. But I think that uh, that's why I said cadence plays a lot into it. Sure. Like playing the role, like in the scene, knowing if you are you know, out of breath, if you're fighting, if you're sad, if you're happy, you know, that type of thing. How do you carry yourself to convey those emotions through sound type of thing? I think Neil Patrick Harris is good at knowing when he's in an action scene or not, but there's not enough in this movie for him to convey emotion that I can latch onto, which is probably why I think, oh, it's just Neil Patrick Harris. Sure, okay. I mean... Compare compare yeah. this. How about this? Compare it to Jason Isaacs, who portrays Raz Al Ghul, or as they call in this movie, Rosh Al Ghul. Uh, Raish. Al Ghul. Yes, I I have to say, you know, as the cinema audience and Ben knows, I spent a lot of my time uh, in my childhood in comic book shops. I've never been unfamiliar. I have never been unfamiliar with Raz Al Ghul as I known him. But I swear, I've heard. 78,000 different pronunciations of this name throughout my entire lifetime. <laughs> um, I, I tend to lean towards Raish because that's the way I've heard it in most anime Okay, I, I, send, I tend towards Roz because that's what I think a lot of people were saying back in my comic sure. days. But at least, Ben, I know you will agree with this. Nobody gives a fuck how we say it. Everybody understands what we're saying right now. Sure. So, Raz al Ghul, I think, you know, he has to do two modes— we hear him two times in this movie. At the first time, he drops his wine and goes, I never should have allied myself with a madman. Like, very disdainly, you know? You get that emotion that something's going wrong. But then, when he comes back to deliver the exposition about, like, him bringing Robin back to life, about him, you know, um, being upset about the fact that he worked with Joker, I think there's a lot of emotion there. I think there's a lot of conveyance of you understand how this character is feeling in those scenes. What, was it the intention of the director, of the uh, you know voice director also, Andrea Romano, great voice director, for her to be like, Neil Patrick Harris, you do you, you're good at that shit, you know? Or was it her intention to be like, no, Nightwing should be peppy, all the time, even after he got kicked in the face by a mezo, which would literally kill him, you know, that type of mm-hmm. thing. I don't know. We don't know. I think that's no, what I'm saying. No, we don't. I mean, yeah. and we also don't know, like, Neil Patrick Harris might have had some say in that as well. And that's, you know, I, I can't I can't say that I know for certain he's a diva or anything, but it's possible that that could also play a role, you know, his attitude and how he is to work with. Did you ever um, see his... I've, I will. I'm gonna try my damnedest to find this clip. I should not be saying this because I have to turn this episode around really quickly. Um, there is a moment. I think it's at the Golden Globes. It might be at the Oscars. It's probably at the Golden Globes where Neil Patrick Harris is not hosting, but the hosts like during a break go over to him and they're like, "Neil, you know, sorry, you're not hosting this year. We sorry, you know, you can't put on a show for us." And he's like, "Oh, it's okay. It's fine. I understand. They got to change things up. That type of thing." And they converse for, like, a few seconds, maybe 10 seconds or something like that. And, you know, it's it's clearly a setup joke, but it's fucking hilarious. Because the host, it's probably Tina Fey or some shit like that, she says, like, Neil, you know, well, what do you think we could have done better about these Oscars? And he goes, one, 
You know, you could have had me host two. You could have changed the color japes and three, four, and stands up and does a musical number. And it <laughs> is really fucking funny. But that's him. He's that over the top. That That's at least how we know him. Does he want to be that over the top in this movie? Does he not want to? I think, you know, it's his choice. I think that's what you were getting at. Um, we don't know. We just literally don't know. Because, right. and like I said before, is he a fan of Batman? Are the directors and writers a fan of him? How did he get this role? <laughs> right. Um, and I think uh, you mentioned uh, the voice performance of Rachel Ghoul. I'd like to bring up just in, you know, in, in another DC animated uh, movie. Sure. The Green Lantern, Emerald Knights, Justice League, Doom, and Justice League Flashpoint Paradox. Uh, the Green Lantern is voiced by Nathan Fillion. And yes, yes. at moments you can tell it's Nathan Fillion. But but it does not remove me from the movie. If, the if same I remember way correctly, just... because I know we've talked about it, because Ben Ben knows. I don't know if the cinema audience knows. Green Lantern is like my fucking comic book character. You know, um, I I know this. I think we've talked about it years ago. But it's like the moments you know it's Nathan Fillion are the moments of extreme emotion. Like it's not like he slips into missing his accent. You know, in that. That fucking Andrew Garfield scene at the end of The Social Network where he slips into British for two lines and everybody makes fun of it, that type of thing. It's mm-hmm. not that. It's not that he's just delivering a line and fucks up, you know. It's that there's so much emotion that, you know, the people who know him go, oh, he's just doing Nathan Fillion now. But the actual moment is like, no, he has so much emotion his voice cracked or something like that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's – yeah, so I guess to highlight the difference between – um you know, a good performance and a bad performance. It's not like Nathan Fillion is like putting on an accent or, yeah. or completely changing his voice, but he is, he is the character as opposed to Neil Patrick Harris being Neil Patrick. And Harris. I, I think you're right about that is that there is something that I don't think either of us in this discussion prior to this discussion, or maybe in the future will be able to put down. It's something that is totally auditory that when you hear somebody, whether or not, you know who that person you're hearing is through an animated voice or you know, a voice actor doing an animated voice, voice for an animated character, sorry, trying to be as specific as possible, Ben, you know whether or not it works, like immediately type of thing. I think this goes back to what we said about John DiMaggio, about how we just were like, the Joker starts talking and he's like, you know, oh, and I break, he's like, what was that? What was that, son? I I know it must be hard to talk when uh, when your lung is collapsed, that type of thing. Neither of us were like, John DiMaggio, here we go. Okay, fuck this movie. Let's watch Adventure Time. Let's watch Blackjack and Hookers. Uh, I'm going to make my own Futurama with Blackjack and Hookers. We didn't say that. We were in the moment, you know? There's a difference between, like, when you're locked into a voice and when you're not. And I don't think that matters about who the voice does. It's about how good that voice is. Sure, yeah. And, you know, and how... Also, like, how well it fits the character and also how well it fits what we're being shown exactly, in the animation. Exactly. Um, and maybe that's another level of it is where, where NPH, like his voice is sometimes it, it just does not fit with what's on screen. Exactly. And I think um, that's why I love NPH so much in the matrix resurrections, which is a live action movie, of course, because he is doing a flamboyant, like his big monologue in the, I was about to say middle. It's like the fifth act of that eight act movie, you know, like he's laying back. He has this whole monologue, like everything is in slow motion around him. And the monologue lasts like 10 minutes and he's doing a whole physical performance, a whole voice performance, that type of thing. And you're locked in. I think there's something for live action actors like NPH 
that they don't know how to shake or they don't know how to translate into animation because the animators are the one responsibles responsible for that movement and I don't know the order of this movie. I don't know the order of a lot of animated movies, but it's like, do you see the animation first? Do you do the voice action first? I don't know. I think it's up to the production, like, quality. I think it's up to the production, you know, flow, things like that. But when it comes together, it's above all else. Like, when you get somebody like, and maybe to to use the, the example I think is really good, Jensen Ackles as the Red Hood in this movie. Dude, he's so fucking believable. And, oh, of yeah, course, absolutely. you know, he's covered by a fucking mask for most of the movie. You know, we don't see him. He's basically Darth Vader in this movie. Dude, there is no moment in Under the Red Hood where I'm like, this is just a guy talking to a microphone. And I think that might be the best test of it, is if there's any moment in an animated voiceover performance where you go, yeah, I can see this man speaking into a microphone in a sound booth, reading off a script type of thing, you've mm. lost. But if you have a whole movie where you never think that, and you think this animated character is one and the same with their voice, dude, that is more important to me, or more successful to me, I should say. Well, more important in a, in a subjective sense. More successful to me than a live-action performance. Because live-action relates on your body standards, your facial expressions. If you can match your voice with something somebody else put together, that's fucking talent right there. That's why John DiMaggio is so good. Bender is a fucking tin can with two eyes and, like, square teeth. But everybody knows Bender. That's a masterpiece. <laughs> yeah, I mean, full, full agree. Um, it's it, it's a different level of talent, especially, and, and we've talked, we've touched on this at other times in, in other episodes, but they're not they don't even get to act against anything. Exactly. The way um, that they do their whole fucking like looping and shit like that, like, oh my god. I mean, that is crazy to me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio, one of our probably biggest movie stars of our of our era and right now. He's never done well, he's probably done some voice and stuff, but he's not known for that shit. He's always he always has the choices to make somebody play off of. You telling me? That he's better than John DiMaggio. When they hire John DiMaggio, he goes, yo, put me in a booth, give me a script. I'll fucking own it, you know? That's right. insane to me. That's insane that anybody can do that to me. Um, and do you know how often they're actually, um, you know, in let's say in a dialogue situation, giving their lines in pairs versus just giving all of their lines individually? In, in this movie, no. Um, it depends on the production. I know that, um, say, in Adventure Time, um, earlier seasons, where we are right now on Patreon, everybody, Ben and I are discussing every episode of Adventure Time in order, in a row, consecutively. That was synonyms, Ben. Okay, don't make fun of me. (laughs) Um, On Patreon, every month, we do the next two episodes. Um, I don't think they ever did that in the early Adventure Time. I think later Adventure Time, they actually did, like, table readings and stuff like that. Um, Mm -hmm. I do think in more modern animation, it comes down to the the actual show. So, for example, Rick and Morty, they do table reads. I know they get a whole crew around a table, and they try and do the whole episode straight through and through type of thing. Um, But, you know, some movies or shows that don't have that amount of money, like, take example the greatest stop-motion movie of all time. And Ben, no, I'm not blowing up our spot for later this, later this season. 
Um, the greatest animated movie of all time is Coraline, which you've already discussed. <laughs> that was all separate. They never did their lines together in that in that movie. And it doesn't show. The seams don't show. The seams are invisible. Yeah, that's and you know, that's an added level of talent where it's like, okay, in a table rating, at least you have other people's voices to work off of. When you're not in a table rating, like when you're just in a sound booth by yourself, you're basically in a vacuum. Yep. yep. You're told what you're trying to achieve in terms of care, uh, in terms of emotion, in terms of, uh, you know, motivation for your character, etc. And then you do it. I agree with what you just said. And wouldn't you even agree if I told you that, like, which happens, this also happens, while you're recording your lines, they play back the other recordings. Like, you're hearing a recording of the other stuff. That is not the same as being in the room with this, with the person, right? Definitely not. And, I mean, someone has to go first, right? So. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I, I think that's why, you know, one of my favorite scenes in cinematic history, and, um, you know, one that we've talked about already on our Coraline episode, where, Ben, we, uh, we go very long talking about Coraline. I love the fact, I just want to reiterate this, I actually don't think I've ever iterated it before, so if I might say it for the first time, Ben, we compare the um, the Coraline, the two universes of Coraline, uh, to isomorphisms and things like that. <laughs> right. Fucking good shit right there. But the whole thing, you know, my one of my favorite scenes is where Coraline keeps walking through the other world, and the world starts to deteriorate, but as she keeps walking with the cat, the world starts to create itself again, and she finds mm. herself back where she started. And Coraline says that thing where she's like, you know, how how can I walk so far and end up at the same place? And the cat says, well, that's what the other mother wants, that type of thing. That is right. not recorded in the same room. But it is one of the greatest trade-offs. That conversation, I'm only saying one part of it, but that conversation is so fantastic. And the way that those two voice actors interact without being in the same room is a masterclass in how animated voice actors should work or voicing animated characters. Everybody knows what I mean at this point. Like, it is, it's talent. It's talent beyond all others. It's talent where, you know, you want all these people who say, oh, animation is lesser, let's go live action. Live action is choices. You get to make those choices. You get to make those different takes. What What the fuck? I mean, if you're in a sound booth and you just have to respond to things, sure, you can go, let me do another take, let me respond a different way. But, like, you don't have emotions to play off of. You don't have faces to play off of. You don't have anything to play off of but a fucking script and a mic and maybe some sounds in your ears. I don't know. I'm getting off tangent because I'm so angry about people who hate animation. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think I think we've said it all here. It, it's the talent needed to do this. It, it's a it's a different kind of talent, but I think a, a more. I don't want to say it's like more involved or anything like that because you're not using your body like that. That is part of it you're not doing. But you, with the voice part, the the emotion part, like that, you're doing so much uh, with so little. Would, would you would you say the talent for voice acting, specifically when it comes to animation, and even if you're a main you know voice actor for animation, you transcend into live action. Would you say that the talent is more in your sense of transformativeness than it is for live action? And hear me out. Like we talked about, let's use this example, John DiMaggio. John DiMaggio 100% has been in live-action things. 
um, very famously, which I love, not very famously, very famously to me, I should say, um, he is a bartender in a very early season of Law and Order. And he's not really doing a crazy voice. He just has to be in one scene and goes like, yeah, I saw her here, that type of thing. But everything since, he has been a chameleon of a voice. Isn't there a difference of talent between somebody who you cannot recognize in his performance versus someone like a Tom Hanks, a Brad Pitt, a Leo DiCaprio, when they play many different roles on live action, but when you look at them, you go, yeah, I know what they're playing, but that's fucking Tom Hanks. That's Leonardo Uh, DiCaprio. That's Brad Pitt. But, like, look at Brad Pitt as the pikey in Snatch and tell me that that's not, like, transformative. Dude, I also want to put forward, um, I don't know if you've seen it, Ben, but Brad Pitt um, in Burn After Reading, the Coen Brothers movie, that's also a very good performance. They're good performance. Okay, maybe maybe let me refine my statement. I was, I was originally saying, don't you think the voice talent acting is better than these live-action performances? Maybe let me refine that. Maybe that's kind of the thesis of this entire series is what it's going to transform to be. I don't think these talents are comparable. Uh, that's probably uh, closer. I, like I would say that a good voice voice performance inherently re- relies on on being transformative, where a good live action por- performance doesn't necessarily. Rely but now, on that. Ben, when you mention the Pikey from Snatch, isn't that isn't that like eighty percent of voice performance? I want to buy my mother. I want to buy my mother a trailer. You want to buy my mother a trailer? And Jason Statham goes, "The fuck did he just say to me?" <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely. Like that's, that's probably the, one of the closest things you'll ever get to, to a straight voice performance. That's actually, that that is why I actually, I hold Brad Pitt in high regard for those types of roles. I think he actually knows how to use his voice. Well, I don't think Leonardo DiCaprio does know how to use his voice. Well, I don't know if there's a single movie that Leo has been in where he's not speaking like Leo. Maybe, maybe what's eating Gilbert grape. But that's when he is like a 17-year-old and he's playing a mentally handicapped person. And he has to fundamentally do something different with his voice. I think Brad Pitt Pitt actually has control over his voice. This is a larger argument. I don't know if we should start right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I I also want to point out, like, to all of those actors who suppress or change their accents while they're doing live action performances like that that is impressive oh. like that is a level of control over their voice yes that, dude that, uh, one of the reasons i love andrew garfield you know him in um the social network him in um uh the amazing spider-man like he, he is playing an american person he's british right. he is right. british <laughs> Well, and, and Hugh Laurie, you know, his house. Yes! He's... Oh, my God. You know how many fucking people to this day don't know Hugh Laurie is British? <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm sure it's a lot of people because there was a time where I didn't. Um, even when he sings, even when Hugh Laurie sings, people are like, wow, he has such a beautiful American voice. And I'm like, what, what the fuck does that mean, you know? <laughs> like, you watch him anywhere else and he's like British as shit, you know? Even in Sahara, the movie he's in, he's super British in that movie. Sure. Um, so I, I mean, I don't know, like is, well, I, well I think... do we, can we, or do we, maybe both questions, Ben, is there a separation between voice acting and live acting performance? Because of course, as we said, 
when you act in live action, you should do something with your voice, whether it be changing your accent, whether it be putting on a voice to perform that role, you know, that type of thing. Is that as important as an animated voice actor performance? Because when you act with a different voice in a live action role, you get to bolster that with your facial expressions, your body mannerisms, things like that, and you're relying on yourself. In animated movies, you're relying on the animators. Is there is there a noticeable difference? Well, clearly there's something noticeable. Is there a talentful difference between that? Uh, I think I think the talent difference uh, really comes down to what you're acting against. Um, and I, I would say that okay. you know, okay. in live action, you have that benefit of being you, you see people, you see them reacting to your acting. Um, you should have all of those layers that you don't get from the voice performance uh, from just, just strictly voice performance level. Sure. Um, but at the same, like like you've mentioned, like it's it, they can't really be compared hand to hand because there are so many of uh, areas where they overlap, but then there's also areas where they're com- you know they're completely different. Um, in in the voice performance, all of your emotion has to go into your voice, uh, yes. whereas you get to use your face in uh, in you know in in a uh, live action movie but then again you know the animator gets to to exaggerate your facial expressions and your features to to kind of exemplify those emotions but then if your emotion doesn't match the face like that looks weird so it's like you you really have yeah. to uh like like there's that level of you know and it, it depends on which order it happens like whether they animate first or, vo- or record first like you either have animators matching the voice voices or you have voices matching animators like either way that there's talent in that yeah, um, you don't know, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, I I also kind of want to say just my immediate thought is that that's another reason animation is um I don't want to say better. I want to say once again soar real on top of reality because in in live action movies, most like not most of 100% 100% of the time people act, they say their stuff and then they have to redub them later. It's always that order, you know? Animation could go either way where it's like what do you get first? Your language Body language or language or language or body language type of thing. Right. Um, so, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I don't think I can say that one requires more talent than the other. They sure. require different kinds of talent. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I'm with you. That They are basically incomparable. Um, you know, in terms of what we said earlier about the ways the fluidity of animation, um, I think, beats live action. That's separate from this. This is something yes. that is totally like the auditory aspect of film is something that is almost incomparable. Yeah. Oh, I, 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 not even almost is incomparable. That type of thing. Yeah, I, I, w- I would say that at least in terms of like if you're talking about like the talent of the actors involved. Yeah. Yeah. I just I don't think you can say very much uh, case by case basis type of thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Right on. Right on. Well, uh, I mean, Ben, I had um, I had um, another big talking point for this movie. Um, but you know, we hit the animation. We hit the voice acting. I think every every week of this month, we're gonna hit those two things because that's our that's our big thesis. You know, animation, voice acting. Oh my god, I'm actually really excited. We're gonna hit a movie in this series um, with a with a voice acting performance that I think is. Probably the best, I would say, is the best of all time, and it is to stick figures. And um, that's going to be a very interesting conversation. But in terms of animation, in terms of voice acting, in terms of anything, you know, grandiose, um, you know, to our thesis, was there anything else you wanted to hit? Because the other topic I wanted to touch on um, was kind of 
uh, maybe to put it, the rating of this movie. But if there's anything else you want to hit on, you know, hit us with it, Ben. Um, so there's a few things just in terms of like the story or the comedy of this movie. Oh, sure. Uh, sure. Oh, I got notes not... on that, man. <laughs> um, there's like in particular, there are some jokes that really land, but there are some jokes that feel pretty forced. Um, and I think a lot of that comes down to the writing. There, there's um, one joke that I don't even know is a joke. <laughs> and, um, I would like to point it out as you incite me for this. Um, Black Mask says you know, about Amazo being destroyed. I could have sold it for scrap, but Batman kept it. And his assistant goes, yes, Batman yeah, likes to keep things. And then there's a noticeable comedic pause. And I'm like, did I miss something? Is this supposed to be funny? Like, is this a reference I'm not getting? What the fuck is that scene, Ben? <laughs> uh, that's that's just a reference to all the shit that's in the Batcave. Well, I know, right? But, like, is that a joke? Uh, I th- I think... Because you get the whole thing. Like, it's in the foreground. Like, Black Mask in the foreground. His assistant, Miss Lee, who's yeah, no, fucking I, I wonderful. Like... like, and then, like, and when the pause happens, Black Mask eyes do a little, like, shift. Like, it's supposed to be comedic. It's supposed to be, like, a sitcom moment. That's how I felt it was supposed to be played. I'm like, what? what? I'm like, that's not funny, though. I know... Like, shouldn't, like, I know Batman keeps things. I know Batman doesn't want you to have things. Don't you know that? Because you've the, become the biggest crime lord of Gotham. Wouldn't you know that, too? Like, what is that hitting I, on? <laughs> I, I, I chuckled at it, like, as Batman kicking him while he's down kind of thing. Like, uh, I, I did chuckle at it a little bit. Like, hey, yes, he, he does like to uh, foil your plans and then also take any chance of, like, recovering anything at all from your plans um but i I agree that it's not like it's not like overbearingly funny like it's not i get what you're saying but is that a joke like why wouldn't batman like like the anti the opposite side of this joke is like you know oh batman took a mezo from me i was gonna sell that for scrap why didn't he leave the remnants of the nuke i tried to buy last year like there's no like batman's never gonna let you keep that shit right no, of, of course. That's why I, I was so confused by it. <laughs> I, I, def, I get where you're coming from. I, 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 like I said, I chuckled at it. Uh, I don't think that it may, like, I think part of it was like the deadpan delivery for me. That, that's my question. Where was your chuckle? Was it in the, the black mask, like doing the eye shift or was it the monotone voice of the assistant going, yes, Batman likes to keep things, you know, I, I even did it more tonally than she did you know i i i kind of like to some degree it's 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 almost like a um like a mother mother coddling a child where it's like yes the thing you're upset about is so you know unknown and unexpected um but i can't actually muster up the emotion to to sound dude dude that that actually is a fucking great take on it because all the other lines between Black Mask and Miss Lee, um, the the assistant of his, um, voiced by Kelly Hu, great, great performance, I think, voice acting, doing that monotone stuff. Um, they all, none of the other ones are funny or meant to be funny. They're the ones where she's like, well, we sent the fearsome hand of four and he dispatched all of them, you know, that type of thing. It's very kind of coddling. That's actually a better way to think about it, that she's the mother who goes, you know, it's like when your kid puts their hand on the stove and it burns them the mother's like you know 
I know it hurts, but what the fuck did you expect? You know, I taught yes, exactly. I taught you what hot is. You know that type of thing. That's a I didn't think about it. That's a really good way to. Th- that makes me. Oh my god, Ben! Is this movie better than I thought it was when I've watched it all these years? <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, I'm, I've probably <laughs> misrepresented this movie for years, saying it's great, it's fantastic. Oh my god, that's actually really good. That's a really good take on that character. Um, but please continue with the um, with those other moments you wanted to mention. So yeah, so there, there's a, a wonderful moment where Joker is, or Black Mask is talking to Joker, and he's like, "You're probably wondering why we broke you out of prison." Um, we need you to, uh, was it to kill the Red Hood? Yes, and yes. And he's like, you're, you're the man for the job. And then Joker's like, ah, I have a dry throat. I'm going to drink some water. And he proceeds to break a glass and kill everybody mm-hmm. in the po- room except the Black Mask. He points the gun and... at uh, Black Mask, yeah. yeah. Right, yes, yeah. So he, yeah, he cuts somebody's throat, grabs their gun, shoots a bunch of people. And then he's just like, I'm going to need some guys. Not these guys. Cause Not these dead. guys, because they're kind of dead. Uh, and it's like, it's their kind of dead part where I'm just like, oh, I don't love that. It's like, if he had just been like, I'm going to need some guys, probably different guys. You know, like he, he could have oh. done something like oh, more you subtle. You don't like the, that perform, that, like that line hitting on the fact that they're dead type of thing. Yeah, we the, know they're, the, dead. they're kind Ooh, of dead. Okay. Like, like, I feel like he could have left that. And it would have been it would have been funnier. Oh, so are you getting at the sense that like the Joker, maybe not just in this movie, but in general, should be a little more, um, you know, leaving the the audience's mind open to imagination? Because everybody when I see the audience, I mean, Black Mask in this case, of course, where he says, you know, I'm going to need some guys, not these guys. Well, what about this? Because he says not these guys, I'm pretty sure, because they're kind of dead. I think it might be better with what you just said to replace it with. I'm going to need some guys. Not your guys. Oh yeah, sure. Not your guys. I like that. Suck. I actually really like that change because when he says your guys, that totally gets across the implication that your the black mask guys are losers that are going to get their throats slashed and shot in fucking five seconds. Right. Uh, yeah. So so yeah, that would have been great. Not not your guys would have been hilarious. I think um, that's but a even great... the line. Yeah, go for it. Even the line. If he had just been like, "I'm going to need some guys." Not these guys. They're kind of dead. Like, even if he had just, like, softly delivered that line, I think it would have been better than the way they, like, punch it. Mm, um, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Like, um, It just it makes it feel more forced, it's I a guess. It's little, a little too aggressive in its yeah. actual delivery. It should have been a little more restrained because, of course, as we know, Joker is going to work with the Black Mask for a little bit type of thing. Right, um, well, he's, he's at least going to try to burn his whole crew entertain him maybe yeah yes yes so so that's i'm glad you brought up that scene because i didn't think about it in the same way you did i thought about it more in the fact that i like seeing the joker as a fucking machine you know like you we get to see the joker as you know in so many iterations you know what i know about him from my old school comic book stuff with batman that type of thing i think everybody knows about the joker you know there's not a lot to talk about there, but with um, the Todd Phillips, you know, Joaquin Phoenix movie from a few years ago, which I hated, absolutely. More importantly, Heath Ledger is the Joker. I think that's a big cultural standpoint. It was really cool to me to see in this movie that the Joker, in one fell swoop, took out like four people. And I was like, the Joker's not just a smart guy, he's a physically relevant guy. And I absolutely. really liked that scene when he, you know... 
smashes the glass, slices the throat, takes the gun, bang, 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 like everybody's done, that type of thing. And it's like, okay, this puts the Joker on a different level because you can't just fucking, you know, play games with him because he's clearly smarter than with, smarter than you. You can't even give him an inch because he's going to take a whole fucking football field, you know, that type of thing. And I don't think we get to see that in The Dark Knight, Heath Ledger's Joker. The Heath Ledger's Joker always has, like, other other than the um, I'm going to make this pencil disappear scene, you know? Um, right. Everything else, it's always like he shows up as a dead body to Gamble's place and he says, you know, he wakes up and, like, holds Gamble by the throat and cuts his stuff and says, you know, whoever we're going to do expansive combat or, you know, whatever the fuck he says. Like, the Joker, in live action, we've never seen be really physically violent. And in sure. this comic book movie, when he just fucking goes hard, like I said, like a killing machine, it's like, it puts it in perspective. It actually took me aback when I when that happened. I went, oh my god, like, not only is the Joker manipulative and smart and he knows when to pull his punches— He's basically like the Superman of this movie, that he's pulling his punches for a reason, and when he decides not to pull his punches, nobody's safe. And I thought that was so cool. I, you know, I, I have to agree entirely. Like, that scene, despite that joke, leading up to it, uh, you know, despite my feelings about the joke, maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe um, leading up to that joke, it's like, this is the baddest ass we've ever seen the Joker. Right? And, and as, a, as a consequence, like, he's one of my favorite characters in this movie. I mean... Obviously, he's a main character uh, or, or an important character, rather, in this movie. But this is also probably my my favorite instantiation of him as a character where we see like, like you've said, you know, he's he's physically um, imposing. And yeah, and yeah. now there's a little more explanation for why people are so afraid of him. It's not just that he's crazy. And he'll come back to get you later. It's that he could also kill you right now. Exactly. And it, it's like the, when it sets in, I'm imagining this from the perspective of a victim of the Joker. When it sets in that he's not just a crazy person, but like you said, could physically harm you at any moment. That's the scariest thing in existence, you know? It's, it's oh, like, yeah. He's, you, he's you, unstable and dangerous. Exactly. It's, and yeah. that is so cool to see. Because don't get me wrong. I mean, like Heath Ledger's Joker, great representation. Not a hot take. I love Heath Ledger as the Joker, that type of thing. But he's more of a mastermind. He's more of a, you know, I'm going to set yeah. up all these dominoes and make sure that even if you fuck one up, there's something else to knock the next one over, that type of thing. That's but right. you never think that, like, Heath Ledger is going to, fucking you know kill you or uh, go toe-to-toe with you or something like that you know yeah you think in a fist fight you might be able to take him exactly exactly you know you probably there's probably people on the internet when dark knight came out that were like yo you put me in room with joker i punch his lights out that'd be it you know and it's like that's not that's not the point he's controlled you to get to that point you know right but this joker plays it from both angles and that's so fucking cool man (laughs) yeah it, it definitely makes him um probably the most dangerous uh, of any and, and it, it actually like lends some credence as to why he's batman's nemesis as opposed to somebody like riddler where it's you know detective versus questioner yes, yes um you actually get joker who's like who's a madman and will blow everything up but it was also capable of violence on like every level that's actually a really cool idea like you just said like batman uh batman versus riddler detective versus questioner like they're basically foils of each other the Joker's not even just a foil of Batman in his beliefs. He's an equal on his physical level from what this movie shows us. And right. isn't that more interesting on a storytelling level? 
Uh, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's it's definitely more interesting. And I mean, like, we, we've seen like in uh, God, two thousand five, the Batman, which is like a WB kids show. Sure. It was pretty decent, but it was definitely more geared towards children. Uh, like we get like a physically Im- impending Joker there, but he's also like silly and goofy, and it's like this isn't. Like this isn't the Joker that you're afraid of. Yeah, yeah. This is the Joker who's like, yeah, if you're if you're around him in public, he makes you uncomfortable. Mm. But but you're not like afraid to, of him. Exactly. I think there's a level to the 1990s Joker played by Mark Hamill, and then into those early 2000s that you just mentioned, where the scariest thing about the Joker is the chemicals that he has that will fuck you up, yeah, type of thing. Yeah, exactly. That's gonna make you physically weak against him. Like that he's gonna do something to you to make you weaker than him. And in this, it's just like, like, dude, there's a reason there's fucking four guards, him in a straitjacket. There's a reason we get the whole scene where Roman Sionis, uh, Black Mask, is like, you know, it took a lot of money and a lot of time to do this, you know, for us to just sit across a table from each other. And you might think at a first glance, like, well, what, what the fuck? He's just in jail. No, he's not in jail. He's in the jail, basically. He's in super jail. <laughs> Super extra serious, Joe. And that's that's just, like, so cool to me. Like, like seeing him in that way. I mean, you know, to, to get off on this tangent, this, now that we've been talking about it and expanding on it and, and, you know, fulfilling these thoughts I've had, this Under the Red Hood Joker is probably my favorite depiction of the Joker, period. I do have to mention, I Christopher Nolan in The Dark Knight with Heath Ledger as a Joker... I don't think there is a better way to represent the Joker's backstory than his changing his tail throughout the movie. Sure. I no, think I... that is that is literally what makes the Joker scary, that he is, as an audience, but here, that's the difference. To me, in Under the Red Hood, the Joker is, scarier, is scary as an audience member because he's so smart and so imposing, but to an audience member... It's it's psychologically more scarier to me that the Joker keeps lying, or who knows when he's telling the truth, in the Christopher Nolan movie. It's really interesting. It's a really interesting take. And, you know, I mean, maybe that's the uh, same way we said John DiMaggio is like the god of voice acting, because he can do so many different things. Maybe the Joker is the god of villain design, because... You can have so many different takes on this one character, and they are all kind of differently intimidating. Well, they're definitely intimidating, intimidating, but also like oddly consistent with each other. Right? Guess, that, right? Yeah, with, yeah. With the exception of 2005, The Batman, that one is very inconsistent. Okay, but but, but like but the, the confusion others. that this character creates in the audience is almost its hallmark. I mean, even you know, also tying in the um the Todd Phillips uh, Joaquin Phoenix playing the Joker. That's very different, yet still very strangely similar to some of the core values of the Joker. Well, it's the iconic things are, are kept the same for those characters. And, and the reason they're not for the 2005 The Batman is because it's more geared towards children. Sure, um, sure. Whereas, you know, the iconic things about the, uh, about the Joker are inherently very unsettling. Yes, yes. Um, and and I, think, I think the biggest thing that's unsettling about him, of course, is the instability. Where it's like, you know... And and like you said, they exemplify that in The Dark Knight by having him uh, change his backstory a lot. Yes. Like that's just another way that he's unstable. But in in a lot of the other renditions, it's like you don't know when he's going to kill somebody. You don't know when when he's going to like blow somebody up. Like if you're in his presence, you don't know what's about to happen. If you're not on edge, you're dead, basically. You're right. Yeah. And yep. you might be dead anyway. 
I have to mention it because I love to mention it. Uh, Heath Ledger's best line as the Joker in The Dark Knight is very early on in the movie. Very early on. It's the end of the cold open at the end of the bank robbery when um, you know all the clown goons have killed each other and there's only two left. It's the real Joker and one goon. And the, the one goon says, like, I think I should kill you because I'm pretty sure the boss told you to kill me. And the Joker says, this is my favorite line in the movie. No, no, I killed the bus driver. There's <laughs> something about the way he delivers that line that is fucking unbelievably good. And, um, you know, that whole movie is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. That type of thing. I remember back in 2008 when I was on the Yu-Gi-Oh circuit still and uh, that movie came out and everybody was talking about it and I was late to the party and I saw it and that opening scene changed my fucking life man the Joker is a great villain he's fantastic in this movie and like I said this is probably my favorite rendition of him because of that scene we were mentioning where he is so mastermindful yet physically violent and dude then we should also say he lights all of those people on fire <laughs> oh yeah that's um i guess maybe that's that's the moment in the movie where he's the most stable because he says he's gonna light them on fire and then he does and then he does and now but also let's actually use this as a transition with the joker's psychoticness to talk about my favorite fucking scene in under the red hood the climactic scene it's batman it's the red hood and it's the joker in one room, and we get the whole thing of the reveal that, you know, um, Jason Todd is saying, you know, I I want you to kill this person because he took me away from you. Yep. Like, he's like, this is my motivation. This is oh my everything. God, that's, that's so tough. That moment where he's just like, why on God's earth is this man still alive? Dude, the line oh, when he says, God. I'm not talking oh. about killing Bane. I'm not talking about killing Dent. I'm not talking about killing anybody else. I'm talking about killing the most sociopathic, like, like ingrate that has ever existed on this earth to who his only existence has been to trouble you. Like, yeah. why wouldn't you kill him? Make the choice type of thing. And then, dude, the whole way that scene plays out. Oh, my God. I mean. Well, it, it, hold on, we can't even because before that we have we have Jason Todd being like, "I'm a better Batman." Than I'm a you. better that whole fight scene on the roof when he's oh like, "I'm God. a better Batman than you," and Batman says, "No, you're controlling Go Gotham like a thug, like everybody we're trying to stop." And he goes, "Well, look at the results, you know, like what the fuck do That's you care?" That's what you never understood. You can't stop evil. You can only intimidate it. And then, oh my god, like literally, the last twenty minutes of this movie are a fucking roller coaster of emotions. That oh yeah, you know, I mean, I I get like why you want the whole Bat Fam to nut in you. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, but dude, like everything because that whole fight scene between the two of them, you have the whole thing where it's like, oh, Batman might have the upper hand. But then, you know, Red Hood does that type of thing. Oh, and then his fucking helmet explodes. And his helmet like, explodes. Dude, the whole fucking thing. Oh, my God. Look under you. That Whatever that line is. Oh, my God. And that all goes back to the choreography, the action that we talked about, all that well, stuff, you know. We have to mention Jason Todd is walking around with an explosive on his face. Because he has the to use it at, at the right moment, bro. He has the whole, no, the I'm right just saying moment. the whole movie, He he. that's how crazy... And, like, disheveled this guy is after going into the Lazarus pit. Because he's ready! <laughs> <laughs> did you did you know... Okay, maybe I should preface this. Have you read the original um, Under the Red Hood comics? I have not. I have not either. 
But I have read DC's Infinite Crisis when Superboy Prime was basically trying to reset the universe for his purposes. Oh, yeah. He, pu- he punches the universe so hard that Jason Todd comes back to life? Yes, was- yes. That's what I'm about to bring up. That in this movie, they just say, oh, Ra's al Ghul felt bad. He put him in the Lazarus pit. No, the whole reason that Jason Todd comes back to life in the comics for the comics to work is because Infinite Crisis resets shit in ways that people don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's uh, really cool. I um I own the entirety of the Infinite Crisis series, not in oh. graphic novel form, in original comic book form. Um, oh, wow. I got them in I got them in like hardbacks and it, well, you can't buy comic books in like hardcover. What I'm saying is like I have like a piece of cardboard, okay, in a sleeve that the comic book goes into that type of thing. Um, gotcha. If I if I did not make it clear to the cinema audience earlier when I said I love Green Lantern, I own Green Lantern number one after the first reset. I don't own Green Lantern number one overall. I own it after Infinite Earth type of thing, um, not Infinite Crisis. But, dude, okay, I had to get that out there because the whole Superboy Prime thing we could not overlook. But, oh, my God, like, the fucking idea that we go from one scene where you're like, okay, I get it. Like, Jason Todd's upset that Batman let him die. He's a better Batman. He can run Batman Gotham better than he does type of thing. Nope, that's not the case. It's all about killing a Joker. It's all about beat with a crowbar. Well, nope, that's not the case. It's about making Batman choose to do something that Batman should have done, according to Jason Todd. Dude, the psychological implications of the last 20 minutes of this movie is fucking crazy. And that is the thing where this transcends a like regular, oh, straight to DVD, this is for kids comic book movie. This is like a psychological impact movie at the, in the last act of it, right? I, I mean, absolutely. Like, I mean, like you said, you know, we have Jason Todd saying it's like he even says, like, I'm not mad that you let me die or that you didn't save me or however he says it. Yeah. I'm not mad that you couldn't save me. But why the fuck is the Joker still alive? Yep. yep. I'm pretty sure there's a line somewhere in there where he's like, you know, uh, it's like, why is the Joker still alive? Why haven't you hurt this ingrate? Like, he took me from you type yeah, of thing. Yeah. And and that that's where the emotional cord is not just plucked, not just struck. It's almost fucking pulled to its tenuous strength where it's like Jason Todd sees Batman as his father and yep. Batman sees the Robins as his father or you know, as, he's as their father children, as yeah. his children, yeah. yes. And it's like this is the emotional continuation of that idea. And well Oh, my, oh God. my God. Then there's also the fact like so he talks on, you know, he touches on like I'm, a, I'm being a better Batman than you right now. Um, like all of this in light of the fact that Dick Grayson had to leave to become Nightwing to get out of Batman's shadow. Like Dick Grayson felt he could never be Batman. And now yep. Jason Todd is saying, like, I am Batman and I'm right. better than you. It's like there's there's the, all these levels to this interaction. That's why I like, love it. I love that there there is literally like. Dude, we could do a whole nother fucking episode on just dissecting the psychological connotations of the last 20 minutes of this movie. I swear, it is that deep, you know? And it would be worth every second of it. I I mean, absolutely. Because we also have to talk about, we've just been talking about how Batman and the Red Hood are talking. But then... The Joker, the, the, yeah, the oh clo- my god. Jason Todd opens the closet. He says, why is this man still alive? And he opens the closet to reveal the Joker. And this is the moment where the Joker sees Jason Todd's face for the first time. And he after finally, having, yes. After having killed him. 
and he realizes he knows what's going on. The Joker's so smart, he starts laughing, because that's what the fucking Joker does. I mean, dude, I mean, I might be skipping some shit, and please, of course, you know, that's that's why I hope our cinema audience loves this. We're filling it in the gaps. The thing that fucking kills me, killed me when I watched this movie, will kill me when I watch this again, when the Joker breaks free, and he's like, the bomb's about to go off, and he says the line... I'm the one who wins. I'm the one who gets what I want. We all go out in a burning flame type of thing, you yes, know? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm watching this, and I'm like, oh my fuck. I'm like, what? why? I don't say why, because I know why. But I go, this animated movie is better than 95% of live-action movies. <laughs> they have not only conveyed to me the action in this movie better, but they have conveyed the emotion to me in this movie better. Well, but yeah, with, without that, with, with that aside, just the idea of the Joker freaking out at the end going, I'm the one who gets what he wants. I win at the end of the day. You know, that type of thing. And then after the building explodes and the Joker is still like in the rubble laughing, I'm like, you can't stop this man. You cannot stop this man. Right. Um, so that's something else like we talked about briefly in our Patreon episode um you know that that in Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight, like the Joker wants the Batman to kill. Yes. Um, while Ray, while Jason Todd has the Joker at gunpoint, and he's like, "You have to shoot him. You have to make a choice. You have to make a choice." Yeah, and, it's you him know, or me. Yeah. And Batman chooses uh, to walk away, but then as the bullet goes off, Batman throws the uh, batarang, dodges the bullet, throws it into the. Um, Gun to uh, yeah. backfire it to cause Robin's, uh, sorry, Red Hood's, you know, hand to explode. And the Joker starts going laughing. He's like, you did it! He's like, that. that's another moment. I'm so glad you reminded me of that moment, Ben. That is a sincere moment when John DiMaggio is doing that voice acting. And when he's like, you did it! You did it, Batman! He doesn't say Batman. He says, like, you fool or something like that. Yeah, but he's he, like, says, he says something like, you always find a way or you whatever. You found a way! You found a way to beat his question, you know? Something like that. He's right. like, you were faced with an ultimatum, and you found a way to subside it or, or divide it or something like that. And what, whatever the actual line is, I'm like, holy, I'm like, holy shit, the Joker is faster than the audience type of thing because we think it's just like oh batman threw it to stop this from you know him getting hit with a bullet you know the common audience i'm not saying you or i ben but the common audience that's what the movie's going for and the joker is just like dude in the 16 milliseconds that that fucking sequence took place in you know because in real life that would go faster than in a blink of an eye Joker oh, yeah. understood what just happened, and he's ready to react, and he understands the emotions of that reaction. And once sure. again, yeah. just to say, nobody had to question that. Anybody watching this movie, Ben, Ben, you, me, anybody in the audience, had to double take and say, what What the fuck just happened? Why did that happen? Everybody no, gets it. That's a plus smooth. of animation. That's a benefit um, of animation. But there's a moment after that where Joker says... To Batman, he's like, you know, you didn't kill me. How disappointing. Yes. <laughs> um, and and so that's like I I'm not 100 percent certain like that could be the Joker just being a dick. But it also could be evidence that the Joker here wants Batman to commit murder as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, because the Joker understands that the reason Batman doesn't kill is because if he does, he will tip over into the 
or at least in his belief structure, he would tip over. I I do take that in this movie because there are some lines where you know Batman says something to um the Red Hood to Jason Todd about how it's like you know you can't be as bad as the thugs that we're dealing with like you can't kill because that's what they're doing that type of thing. Um, it is very much more clear in the Dark Knight with Heath Ledger's Joker. With the whole sense of, you know, another great scene, like after the truck flips over on the big chase type of thing, and the Joker is just there in the street, and Batman's hit, coming at him with the um, bat cycle type of thing, and Joker goes, hit me, hit me, hit me, you know, that type mm-hmm. of thing. Um, and I think even later in The Dark Knight, Joker says something, it's like, I want you to kill me to prove that you're corruptible. And when he right. realizes he can't corrupt Batman, he corrupts Harvey Dent, and... um Right. That's one of the reasons Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight is a fantastic movie and a fantastic comic book adaptation. But I, I do think that's what this movie is going for as well, where the Joker wants – he he either wants Batman – well, maybe let, let me put it this way. He wants Batman to become corrupted or for him and Batman to die at the same time. I actually do put a lot of weight on that line where he says, you know, when, like, Joker has the upper hand on Batman at the end of the movie, because after Batman, like, blows up Jason Todd's hand and, like, hits him in the chest with a battering, or shoulder with a battering, whatever the fuck happens, and there's, like, the bomb in the fireplace, Joker's on top of Batman, he's like, this is what I want, I get what I want, we all die in a ball of flames, you know? Yeah, he even says, I'm the only one who gets what I want. Yes, yes, and I love that line. I fucking love that line. Because that, that to me, is what the Joker wants. The Joker doesn't want to, like, win at the end of the day. The Joker wants to prove his thesis. And if even if it takes his death, he wants to prove that, like, everything Gotham has ever stood for, everything the Batman has ever stood for, was just a fleeting glimpse of, of imagination type of thing. Yeah, and that, that's something that, like... I guess also leads into like why they're um, why Joker's the nemesis um, as opposed to somebody who's more antithetical to Batman's actual like ability and skill set. Yes. Is that he is the opposite in terms of his value structure. Exactly. Not only like, like we were saying, he's only, he's a physical equal, which we like in this movie, but he's also the foil to that belief. Absolutely. That's so fucking cool. This movie's so fucking good, bro. Oh, my God. Okay, so we we went through all that, and we still didn't talk about the camera. Okay. Let me me say this, Ben. Every time we do an episode on Cinemodities, we got this little, like, VHS picture, you know, that I usually put the movie poster in the middle of, you know, type of thing. You know, um... Big Fish took the movie poster, shrunk it down, put it in this little VHS cassette. You know, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, the middle of a VHS... Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. You've seen it before. Today. You, what the fuck am I saying? You, you're a cinemodities host. What the fuck am I saying that you don't know what this is? Okay, here was my thought. I would love, of course, to put the under the red hood poster on our little episode logo for this. Should I just put a picture of a crowbar? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it would be great if we could somehow get a picture of you and me both with a crowbar. How? Um, what? Why are we so stupid that we didn't think of this? Oh my god! Eight months ago, ago yeah, eight, yeah, when, when I was actually with you. So, because I, I don't know if you have a crowbar, dude. I would have fucking said, Ben, I'm gonna go out and buy a crowbar. This will be Patreon money in the later, yep. dude. We probably had the fucking Patreon money for a crowbar eight months ago. Yep. Jesus yep. fucking Christ! I okay, okay. Stop This this is the thing in all seriousness, that we've talked about a lot in terms of this movie. 
I don't remember where it's come up. I don't remember why it's come up, but it's come up at least five times. For some reason, Ben and I always like to bring up the macabre aspect of the line of, take one of me and the kid. Take one of me and you. Take one of the three of us. And then take one of us with the crowbar. <laughs> if I got that wrong, I'm sorry. I'll put the that's, clip in. That's pretty damn close, if, if it's not exact. I, I know that that might be a testament to how good that line is, that it has changed shape in my imagination throughout the years while keeping the bare-bones structure. There is something, and this I knew we had to talk about, there is something about how good that line is that makes it meaningful. It's not a line that gets misrepresented because people want something better. It's something that gets misrepresented rather through a game of telephone that Mm. everybody who's ever seen this thinks it's so good. They tell their friend, they tell their friend, they tell their mom, their mom tells their friend, their mom (laughs) tells their dad, their mom tells their other friend, and it gets bastardized. Gotta give the boy points. He came all the way back from the dead to make this shindig happen. So, who's got a camera? Ooh, ooh, get one of me and the kid first. Then you and me, then the three of us, and then one with the crowbar. Then... There is a legacy to that line. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I I think one of the things, though, uh, I think it gets lost a little bit in translation. If you haven't seen this movie, you can't understand how important the crowbar is. Oh yes, yeah. There is a point in this movie, the movie cold, the movie's cold open is the Joker beating, beating the absolute shit out of Robin, Jason Todd, with a crowbar, and then later on in the movie, Jason Todd, there's a moment, there is a moment where you think, or the audience is led to think, that Jason Todd, the Red Hood's motivation, is to get revenge by beating the Joker with a crowbar. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Like the crowbar is a a continuation of the human body's intimidation and physical tactics at it's, a certain point a, in this movie. Certainly a linchpin of this movie. Yes. But, and and we get the whole like uh you know which hurts worse, A or B? Yeah. Forehand oh my God. or backhand. Yes, yes. Um and and you know so like the crowbar is just it's such a a viral or like I don't know, not viral, it's just like a vital point. Of, of this movie that when Joker says, then let's take one with the crowbar. It's like, oh, my God. For one, how fucking crazy are you to be making a joke about this thing that just beat the shit out of you? But for two, how poignant is that? The line Ben just mentioned is before the whole thing that we were talking about. And I'm the only one that wins. You know, that's before that. Like, yes, he... the joke, oh my god, it's so good, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, at this point, the Joker has not won, does not know he will win, maybe has an idea, because he is a very smart character, um, but he is tied to a chair and has just gotten the shit beaten out of him and is is come to realize that the person who's beating the shit out of him is somebody he thought he killed, and clearly this person wants him dead, and he makes this joke. Beautiful, beautiful. I mean, like, uh, animation, live action aside, I want to say, in terms of cinematic representation of emotion, like, undeniably, indefatigably, amazing. 
that's where this movie exceeds in a way that I don't think I've seen a lot of movies succeed emotionally in the past. Agreed. Under the Red Hood, bro. Under the Red Hood. Okay. Um, Ben, I'm I'm realizing that um, I I said to you when we were planning on recording this, because it's very late where Ben is, I was like, oh, dude, it'll it'll be good. We don't have a lot to say about this. You know, 75 minutes, uh, two and a half hours later. Um, How about this? Can I hit one more big point? We don't have to hit it too much, and then we'll do our questions because the main feed, that type of thing. Are you okay with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's, okay. yeah, let's do it. Here, here's my last big point, because we've, we've hit all my major talking points. I'm so glad we talk about animation. I'm so glad we talk about the, uh, the fluidity of combat, the uh, CGI, the voice acting. Here's, the other, here's my last thing. Not going full R rating with this, because this is PG-13. That was something I wanted to pick your brain on, because um, when we talk about adult animation, like you said, we're not doing erotica. Uh, we're not doing Cool World, that type of thing. We're not even doing fucking, you know... Uh, who framed Roger Rabbit with, uh, you know, Mrs. Big Tits, Jessica mm-hmm. Rabbit, you know, that type of thing. I had a big thought. I actually thought that this was R-rated. I actually, in my research, found that it wasn't uh, after the fact. I actually thought it was, um, which makes sense. There's nothing really gory, violent. There is violence, of course, like we said, but nothing gory. Um, I wanted to pick your brain on why you thought it was not R-rated, but before I ask you that, I want to get rid of the bullshit in the room. There is an IMDB trivia fact that says this. And of course, Ben, you know where I'm going with this. Originally, this was going to be rated R, but was cut back to PG-13 because of, one, the poor sales of the animated Wonder Woman in 2009, and two, the poor box office performance of Watchmen in 2009. Ben, can you, can you tell me what what the fuck does Wonder Woman 2009 or Watchmen, the movie, have to do with this at all? What What is the fucking correlation there? Is there any? Can you can you even bare bones make a correlate? Like, research brain Ben, make a fucking hair strand connection? What the fuck does that mean? Um... <laughs> Here, here's the thing. For more context, Watchmen 2009 was rated R. And did do poorly at the box office, even though I was somebody who paid to see it twice in theaters. Um, Wonder Woman 2009, the previous DC animated film, if you look at all DC animated films, their chronology, this Wonder Woman was the one to come out before this. Not rated R. Uh, Best guess, they are asserting that the brand was not strong enough to deal with an R rating, and they think that an R rating somehow directly or, or or i guess they think that an r rating can hurt performance and they think that because of wonder woman 2009 um that they couldn't withstand a, a performance that could be hurt in that way um i have a hard time believing that that's related at all though because wonder woman always performs drastically different than anything else right separate topics separate stuff especially you want to talk about separate topics fucking watchmen watchmen is a dc comic it's under the dc you know label but it has nothing to fucking do with dc universe type of thing even back then in in well in the fucking 80s when watchmen came out it wasn't related to any of the dc shit it was separate it was um if i if i remember right watchmen the uh, like a lot of those characters were created because they needed to be able to die and they couldn't be 
Oh yeah, um, like they need to be able to die and stay dead. It was almost like you know, in, in like independent because they wanted to. David Moore wanted to make a story. Sorry, Roger David Moore wanted to make a story to have these characters die and have emotion because he knew if they used the existing DC characters, they wouldn't let them die permanently. Right. Exactly. Um, as always, I couldn't find no corroboration of this IMDb fact. And that's I wanted to bring that up because it's an instance of an IMDb trivia fact that I could find no corroboration of, which is most of them. But also, I don't fucking understand. Here's my here's my pitch, Ben. I think that there does exist somewhere, maybe not in animated form, maybe not in a way we could watch, but in script or storyboard form, a much more violent and gory version of this movie. But they cut it back to make it PG-13, because that would reach wider audiences. That is my guess. And here's the, here's the reason I think that. This movie implies a lot of violence. We get the scene when, you know, um, Red Hood and his first, like, big mob meeting, he drops off the duffel bag, and, like, we don't get to see any of it, but, like, one of the mob bosses goes, these are our lieutenant's heads type of thing. And, yeah. you know, you get scenes of a lot, like, when Joker is hitting Jason Todd with the crowbar at the first, in the cold open. Right. You see you see his feet wriggling and stuff, or the shadow of Joker, but you don't actually see. You see a little bit of blood in, like, the aftermath. You don't see blood coming out of our characters, that type of thing. Right. This There's movie no implies violence, but it does not show violence or gore. And I, I honestly think... They had to do that to make it PG-13. What This is something that I did not do research on, but I'm sure that we could do full research on, and with the time we would able be able to dive and do further. I don't know, in 2010, you know what, this is like the eighth DC animated film. They haven't been like as deep as we are now, nowhere near as deep as uh, Constantine City of Demons, I think. Which is which was very gory, if you remember, because we talked yeah. about that on our Patreon, everybody. I think that they clearly had to imply violence rather than show it to keep a PG-13 to make it more accessible to the direct home video audience. Like, I think there is a level of saying like, oh, I like Batman or even my teenage kids like Batman. I don't there's parents who go, I'm not going to buy them an R rated Batman but I might, you know, loosen the tassels a bit and buy him a PG-13 type of thing. Sure. I think yeah. this. I think this was a fiscal decision, is what I'm saying. What do you What do you think? Because I know that from what you said, we both agree this movie is very adult with its themes, with its violence. I mean, dude, we didn't even talk about. It. There's a whole scene where the Red Hood shoots a guy's Molotov cocktail and the guy lights on fire. Like, oh yeah, that's, that's really fucking brutal, you know. But that. We don't we don't see like a lot of blood, we don't see a lot of broken bones, we don't see a lot of gore. It's all implied. Do you think that was for the reason to keep the rating down to make more money? Um well to your point, I think that that might be what the IMDb person meant. Uh if they meant that the previous DC movie did poorly and they could not take Dude, There's a sex scene in Watchmen. Like how what even how is that even a comparison? Like well, Watchmen was that, never not going to be R. No, no, no. So, so you said that they, you know, you're thinking that they um, went PG-13 to to for the as a fiscal decision to reach a wider audience. Yeah, yeah. And and perhaps that there was a discussion, uh, or or you know, this commenter is suggesting there's a discussion at DC of like, 
we could go R, but we need to reach a higher audience because our previous two films have done poorly. Well, well, okay, I get that what you're saying with Watchmen, but like I said, Wonder Woman 2009 was not was R. actually. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, so it does. Like, what the movies. fuck does that make? What does that mean? If if you had a if your previous DC animated movie was PG thirteen and it sucked, well, sucked in financial terms. Wouldn't you want to try something different? Like, wouldn't you either go let's go hard R to appeal to that audience, or let's go PG to appeal to more audiences? Why would you? What is the connection between our last PG thirteen movie didn't do well? Let's do another PG thirteen movie. What? I, um, I don't get that. Well, I mean, the only way that there could be connection there is if, and this is something I don't know if it's true, is if um, PG-13 is seen as like a not risky demographic. That's a, um, that's a question that I think now, like today, as we record this, PG-13 is basically the most mild rating. Like if something's PG-13, nobody gives a fuck. I think, Well, when I say risky demographic, I mean that when you target something at that market that you're, that you're likely to, to see higher returns than if you target it at either the R or PG markets. Um, That's fair. That's uh, fair. I understand. I understand what you're saying now. Okay. Okay. I don't know. So, I, I really don't know, though. I'm not a... Yeah, um, and I don't either. You know, I, that is actually somewhere where we would need Zach for this because he understands box offices, Um, I think, you know, as much as you and I think Zach is a goober, and he's not here because he's working on the restaurant and also kind of hates animation, Um, that type of thing. Um, You know, he understands that better than I and and you, I think we can both agree. Um, yeah, absolutely. Type of thing. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to bring that up because that IMDb trivia effect was fucking stupid as shit. <laughs> and uh, I love. Uh, yeah, you got to do some. You got to do some gymnastics to get there. Yeah, and I I just wanted to bring light to that. So Ben, with that being said, were there any other moments from this movie? Any other you know a- anything animated? Any under the red hood? Any Batman that type of stuff? Do we want to hit on it, or are you ready for our questions? I mean. We didn't we didn't touch on the story parts nearly as much as I would have uh, as I would have liked to in terms oh, of you know discussing yeah. oh the significance of Jason Todd choosing the Red Hood the Red Hood being the moniker the Joker used before he became the Joker and all in uh, like the significance of that um, the lore you're right the lore is but, really fucking cool but I suspect if anybody has talked about this movie for any reason that they've covered that material. And and we can leave our audience wanting more. Um, so I like I'm okay. That. I like that. Ben, Ben, you're getting the hang of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, and and hell, if uh, if they really want to hear it, we can uh, we can throw that on the Patreon. Absolutely, dude. Okay, well then, that brings us to our questions, and um, I would. Like to say at the start, I think this will be quick, but I actually have some open-ended questions. Uh, but let's go Cinemodities Late Night first. I'll start off. Cinemodities, no. There's nothing odd about this. This is what I would consider a DC animated movie. Am I, you know, biased by the fact that this is one of the first and, you know, foremost DC animated movies that I consider? Absolutely. But I don't think there's anything odd about it in terms of late night fucking hell yes this is so much fun why wouldn't you want to watch this 75 minute movie late at night with other people dude not even consider how fun the entire story is but even you know i'm thinking late night in this aspect that like people are winding down they're ready to go to bed dude you throw this on you get a great cold open the whole fucking thing of batman racing to the scene joker beating up you know robin with the crowbar 
Robin trying to escape, Batman not making it in time, boom, great opening scene, cut to opening credits that are shot like they're animated panels of a comic book. Like, what more do you want from, like, let's get ready for bed? That sounds weird <laughs> when I say it that way, but I think, Ben, you know what I mean. So I, I, I totally do. I throw it over to you. Cinemizers and Late Night, what do you think? I, I mean, unfortunately, there's going to be no dissent here. Odd, no. It's uh, right. I, I will say it, it does stick out in terms of DC animated movies as being um, maybe one of the best ones, uh, and that it sticks out as doing some things with with the dark and the macabre. I I they... actually I I'm sorry to cut you off, but I actually have to say because I don't think I said it earlier. I think this is my favorite animated DC thing. Period. Sure. I actually I my other thing that I always like to highlight is the series finale of justice league unlimited which is superman versus dark side because you get that whole monologue from superman where he goes while i'm on earth i've always had to pull back i've always had had to be afraid of breaking things but you're mm-hmm. such a big threat i need to go full force like that whole fucking last 30 minutes of justice league unlimited is amazing but i think this is better i think this is better this is my favorite animated dc thing period that's great that's awesome i uh i probably agree i've seen a lot of animated dc things but i think that this one definitely has stuck out of my mind the most i mean there's also i think it's like right at the end of justice league before they transition to justice league unlimited that there are like there's like um oh i think it's like metallo parasites like parasite like you know, programs that Metallo creates to infect our superheroes' brains and control mm-hmm. them, and it makes Batman fire a gun, and at the end of the episode, he gets freed from it, but he still remembers firing a gun, and there's a really emotional moment. That's a really good animated episode. Uh, and then, I mean, of course, there's Young Justice as well, which oh, is which is really shit. good. I, I'm just saying, DC, they do animated Asian animation I know, right. I know. You're right. You're right. We we can't argue this now because clearly Ben and I are too much of fanboys for animation and DC, and when they combine, we think they're the coolest goddamn thing ever. Thank you, everybody. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, so you know that being said, uh, it's it's not odd. It, it's in fitting a lot with what DC does uh, in terms of their animated movies. It's it's the reason that I love all, all of their stuff so much, or almost all of it. Don't get me wrong. There's there are some uh, duds. But you know it, it's it's very good. But uh, but no, I, I think it's definitely not odd. Late night, absolutely. Uh, no, no questions Dude, asked for you. me. Dude, Somebody wants you. to put under the red hood on. I was, I was about to say. yell at you if you said no about this on late night. <laughs> but I was about to be like, um, Ben, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I mean, I I think like la- I actually watched this last night to get ready for this recording late night like I, I put it on at like 11 or something and then I, I like stayed up way later than i was supposed to watching this movie um i say supposed to like somebody else cares about it it's just me i didn't well, well I, everybody I, I knows was, you know i i i give you the cinema's restaurant i should say gives you a bedtime <laughs> that, okay yeah fair enough um but yeah so i mean i like definitely in terms of late night it, it's fucking a great movie me and my wife stayed up and watched it and you know had a good time um, and then of course for anybody else, what I, what I spent, stay up and show this movie to them. Absolutely. I have and will again. It's so much fun. Like I said, at my answer, isn't it this like 75 minutes? Well, one, that aspect you're in, you're out the whole time. It's fucking clean. 
animation wise. It's engaging story wise, oh. and it's and it's fun through and through. Uh, start late. They they do that well in this. Uh, it's that's like a, a prime. Yes, yes. You know, aspect of of fiction writing is you want to start the scene when the scene's already happening, and they absolutely do that in this. Um, and then leave early. They fucking leave right after the explosion. We don't get too much follow up. Um, leave right when they need to. They leave right when right. they need to. Absolutely. Speaking of starting late, that was this recording tonight. So I know Ben has to go to bed. I got to go to bed too. Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, let's get to snacks for the restaurant. How about this? I'll start with the things I think are more open ended because I have actually two questions in my snacks section. Um, okay. Here's the first one. What would happen if you drank the liquid from the Lazarus pit? I don't want to say that we should offer it as a beverage until we ask this question and talk about this question. Because we see, and I'm pretty sure, if um, Ben, correct me if I'm wrong, my knowledge of the Lazarus Pit is that you have to bathe in it. That is a very much, you know, full-body experience. What if it was an ingestive experience? Do you know what would happen? Or, not that would you know, because Ben's like, well, yes, Rob, as he takes his corncob pipe. I am a scholar of the Lazarus Pit. No, what would happen if you drank the Lazarus Pit liquid? Uh, so I'm inclined to say, uh, and, you know, maybe this is just me being an old man, uh, but I'm inclined to say undying indigestion. Ooh, um, okay. This, okay. Is, this is the heartburn that doesn't go away, um, can't be killed by Tums. Before, before you continue, because I want to know what you say, uh, you said this might be the old man answer. Yeah, I had the actual same thought, but, but here, here's here's the other here's here's my take on it. This might be the alcoholic's answer. It would fix my liver. <laughs> I'm with you. I think we're both on the same page that it would do something for the organs that um you know it can't do for the um rejuvenation of the full body. And um you know even maybe let's take it to a, a frame of reference that I think neither you and I have. Um maybe it would. Fix your pancreas, and you wouldn't have diabetes anymore, right? Hey, there you go. Yeah. You you would not de-age in the way that Rajal Ghul does, but you would, you know, fix those organs. Um, or, so or maybe just like one part of you would de-age. Like you fix the wor- <laughs> it fix the worst part and de-ages it. That I'm actually thinking. Could you imagine going to a doctor and be like, "You're a very healthy thirty year old, but you have the spleen of a fifty year or uh, five year old, you know, or something like that, you know." <laughs> Your your spleen can be no more than three and a half what, years. What old. like what like we need to study you, Mister Benjamin Button, that type of thing. Okay, right. um, so what clear, do you do? clearly from what we said, um, drinking the Lazarus Pit or the Lazarus Pit in general. Maybe let's do that. That should be for us. That should not be for the customers or our waste staff. That should be for you, me, and Zach, the owners of the restaurant. Should I say? Sure. And how can we ever expect to run an infinite void um, forever if it were not for being immortal? Okay, next question. Oh, God, this is this is one I can't believe we've never talked about before. I really can't believe we didn't come up with this in the Spider-Man series. Would vigilantes arise in the Cinematis restaurant because of the perceived bad we're doing? We have the infinite void. We have people clearly stuck in there for an infinite amount of time, for their lifetime, I should say. Um, Our whole restaurant has become its own sort of ecosystem, that type of thing. Do you think vigilantes would arise? I don't think vigilantes would arise to fight against us because I think that they wouldn't have any fucking idea what we're doing. Um, Are you saying vigilantes would arise to 
take care of the crime that is caused by other trapped customers? Absolutely. How do we fucking write this comic? How do in two panels we make the audience understand what the Cinemodities restaurant is and then say, this is a closed ecosystem and here is Cinemodities Man, you know, or something like that. Uh, you know, I I don't know how we write it. Um, I might be able to illustrate it. Uh, it Thank will, you. It will okay. take a long time. You're right. But... You're right, Ben. You are the illustrator. I would have to put the time to write for it. But um, I, I actually, I'm glad you actually put it that way because I was coming at it more from the fact of um, we would have a vigilante trying to, to stop, stop us. us from delivering food to customers, that type of thing. Ooh. Like we would have, you know, uh, may I say, you know, restaurant man type of thing. Because anybody who's stuck in our restaurant i'm sorry everybody who's listening to this you're fucking stupid you'd call yourself restaurant man that's the <laughs> stupidest fucking name in existence you know i mean you could be better you could call yourself you know like cinnamon or something like that but no you're restaurant well, man type of thing then they might be afraid that people would think that they're like cinnamon flavored okay you know <laughs> <laughs> okay let me let me take a breath right there you just you hit me i didn't expect that I was gonna say, I was gonna say, Modities Man or Man of Modities next. You hit me with Cinnamon Man, <laughs> like I mean, you hit me with a Shrek character, basically. <laughs> no, I'm just saying you can't be Cinnamon because then that sounds too much like Cinnabon. Well, Cinnamon, we would hire to be a spokesperson of ours, you know, if you want our cinnamon breakfast-flavored cereals, of course. There you go. But like, I was thinking, Man of Modities. Modities man, you know, that's what I was thinking they'd call themselves type of thing. Um, not that Batman calls himself Batman because goth, Gotham or anything like that. Not, you know, yeah. that's what I was just thinking. But um, um, clearly, though, I think with that question being posed, maybe we can talk about that later on as we get to more um, vigilante-based things, which won't be for a while. Um, I do want to just put forward, um, Ben, you and I, of course, as owners, operators of the restaurant— um, we would fucking shoot down any vigilante that wants to stop us, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank roll you. with an iron fist. With an iron fist. I would say with an iron bullet, if I might be so so fair. Okay, well. I, I use steel. I, okay, steel bullet. Whatever. I would hit him with a fucking plutonium bullet if I had the chance. Um, nobody's challenging this goddamn restaurant. I peeked on my mic hard right there as I looked at my audio. Okay. Um, I do have some actual snacks, but before I get to them, I have those questions get out of the way. Ben, what do you have for the restaurant? Um, well, for one, um, I think we need an area where people can throw Molotov cocktails, uh, just because I think that's a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> What they throw them at, I am is, open for consideration. Is there someone trying to shoot them out of their hands before they throw? Absolutely. That's Ben. We're we're too good together. How the fuck did this happen? We're like that's that's just that's just like a fun experience right there. Like right. you better you're throw like, it fast enough, or else you're gonna burn. <laughs> yeah. So like they're you're trying. That's probably what it is. You, they're trying to throw the Molotov cocktail at the shooter. The shooter's trying to shoot it out of their hands before they can throw it. It's, you know, it's a good fucking time for everybody. Okay, okay. Uh, let me uh, come back with that. I think that's a great snack. Let me come back with one of mine. Um, an Amazo for the restaurant as security. I um, okay. I think that, you know, we've talked about, especially on this um, last four-year extravaganza, uh, Zach and I talked about, well, I did. Zach just, I don't know, 
fucked off and ate a sandwich or something. Um, but Ben, I don't, I don't know if you're aware of this. Well, no, Ben, you are aware of this because we were all there. We were all there. I'm sorry. I keep fucking this joke up. Um, I went through our spreadsheet, like our three years plus of spreadsheet, and I ranked all of our security defenses, you know, and I said, like, what will be first line of defense, what will be second, third, fourth, fifth, that type of thing. Um, our last line of defense was basically either nuclear weapons or a laser from out of space. Um, somewhere in there, we should add an amazo, because I think that we've definitely introduced some super-powered individuals into the restaurant, and we should have a creature or a cyborg to absorb those powers to be able to combat them. So I think an amazo as a security force, not only for um, the customers, because customers get unruly sometimes, and, you know, you might need to slam them into oblivion, that type of thing. Um, but you also need to protect the restaurant from those that are a lot of, a lot of, well, actually, that's right. Not It's not a little, it's a lot of, a lot of stronger. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that we've, I mean, so I'm sure that we've introduced, like, just actually put them in our restaurant, but do you think that there's, like, chemicals in our restaurant that are making people superpowered? Oh, God, that sounds so fucking like it has to exist in the restaurant. <laughs> I don't think it should anymore after everything we've gone through over the years. That sounds like an early introduction that we should take away because, <laughs> like, if anything, the people that just live in our restaurant because they can't find the exit because it's an infinite void. We don't want them to get superpowers. I would rather they never have superpowers and form, like, tribes and shit like that. Like, like you can basically track the entirety of human evolution through, like, I don't know, three months of the Cinematis restaurant or something like that. Yeah, I, I would love to see them discover fire. Um, you know, they're just... <laughs> <laughs> they're in the restaurant. And they're like, oh, we have, we have no warmth. Wouldn't it be cool to watch a like Discovery Channel documentary about like early human civilization discovering fire? But when they do, a waiter comes by and takes it away from them. <laughs> wouldn't that wouldn't would be that be funny. okay? Okay, that's actually. We might need to put Patreon money into making a uh, eleven minute YouTube video about that because that shit's fucking funny. <laughs> um, I'm glad you said that. I the next thing I want to pitch in terms of snacks is um, this is a very simple one. Raz Al Ghul's wine. Here's the thing: we know Raz Al Ghul drinks wine. He spills it in the opening scene. He pours some in the scene when uh, Batman comes to visit him. Here's the reason I wanted to point it out: Raz Al Ghul. As we know, and as he says in this movie, is like six fucking centuries old. Yes. Yep. If he's not drinking the best fucking wine in existence, what the fuck are we doing? Right? Uh, he's he's probably drinking the wine that he likes the best. Um, it's which, gotta as be. Far, it's gotta be good though. It's probably like some kind of grape juice soda he's not no no he's not drinking like you know carlo rossini wine that comes in a fucking jug that you can get for 12 bucks you know i mean like, dude I, when you've been alive that long how, do you care about pretenses like drink what you want not not what people think is good he's probably drinking like fucking uh well, what is that shit called like scarlet moscato or something it's basically just like ben you you you, you made a good point you open my eyes i'm sorry i would like to think that Ra's al Ghul is make his own wine. If he is, let's drink that. If he's not, fuck him. Fuck him to death. Thank you. I, no, I think that he is drinking the wine he enjoys. And No, no, you're right. And if that is bad, if that's really fucking good ancient wine, we serve it. If it's bad wine, fuck that shit. Fuck that shit. 
Dude, Rachel Gold loves two buckshot. Do you? Do you. <laughs> how about this? Actually, how about this? Just like seafood at a lot of restaurants on the coasts do market price type of thing, you know, like like lobster market price, cod lobster price. Uh, wow, that'd be weird if you had cod lobster cod price. lobster price. <laughs> okay, new new introduction to the restaurant menu item: cod. Under like lobster price. <laughs> God, you're God, paying you're paying the lobster price for cod. That's actually really good. But you know what I mean? Like it's like market price idea. Rajal Go price. Like how what is Rajal like we have a house wine of the day. What does Rajal Ghoul think that wine is worth? That's what we charge the customer. What do you think? There you go. That sounds good. Okay. We just bring Rajal Ghoul in just to be like, hey, how what do you think this wine's worth? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm with you. Okay. I have one other thing that is not food related. Do you have anything else for the restaurant? I, I think that we uh, we really just need somebody to run around and kill people who are dealing drugs to children in the restaurant. Doesn't that deflate the purpose of the sin emodities portion of the restaurant? It's people who are dealing drugs to children outside of the sin outside of because, the, okay, thank because you, they're thank cutting you. into our margin. Yes, if you if your kids want drugs, they have to come to the Cinemodities <laughs> restaurant where the whole family is. What, dude? Just like we did the Patreon rap, we should do a fucking like you know gung ho down home commercial. You know, For chicken marsala seven ninety nine, cigarettes eight ninety nine, lemon flavored cigarettes eight ninety nine. You know that type of thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's actually really funny. Yeah, we should not. Um, allow any competition outside of a restaurant. I'm glad you're in agreement with that, Ben. Um, we yeah. should become a monopoly, um, not only in terms of prices and foods, but in terms of civilization. <laughs> yeah. Okay, my last question actually goes close to that, um, but I think it's a little more specific. Um, you know, Black Mask assistant in this movie, you know, the um, yep. Batman likes to keep things. She seems to be there for him, like, no matter what. Like, she is there to clear up what he doesn't understand. He, She's there to give information, that type of thing. Yeah. She's great. She's actually, like, one of the only female figures in this movie. Um, she's also the only uh, employee or underling of his that does not get punched by him. Exactly, exactly. She almost has, you know, plot armor, if I might say. Um I this is the first time this has actually come up. I this is honestly the first time in four plus years of cinematics that this has come up. Do we need an assistant like her? Do you, me and Zach, the owners, the founders of this restaurant, do we need some badass bitch to keep us on our toes? Not in the sense of like, oh, we're gonna throw shit at you. Like I'm not talking like Jacques Cousteau type of thing, you know. But I'm talking like don't we need an assistant to make sure we know our schedule, to keep things running, like the brains of the operation behind us type of thing? And honestly, the reason I think this is because in that scene, when she says to Black Mask, you know, she says, like, a Batman stole my scrap metal. And she goes, yes, Batman likes to keep things. Don't we need someone to check us like she does in that moment? Uh, I know Zach does. I don't know... <laughs> <laughs> dude we could end the episode right fucking there that was hilarious um i i kind of think i would like a, an assist well let me let me let me get this straight i don't think it needs to be female 
I think we need someone as smart as this female. That's what I'm saying. Would, would I like if it's a female in that monotone voice? Hell yeah, because Hel- Kelly Who is doing a great job at that voice acting performance. But, like, I think there is a level to our upper staff because it's me, you, and Zach right now. We got Maximo. He's our um, restaurant lawyer, if you remember, from way back when. That was, like, two years ago. Why don't we add an assistant? Why don't we add somebody who knows the ins and out, the days to day, what meetings we do and do not have to make? I mean, maybe, Ben, I'm saying this because I've missed some meetings in the past because I like to get, you know, a little inebriated. That's just what I'm saying. Maybe I need a monotone lady. I almost said monotone bitch, but a monotone lady to keep me in check. I kind of think that would be good for us. Um. Oh yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I um when I took my first uh like job outside of college, I missed I missed a lot of meetings because uh, Outlook and Max don't work too well together. Um, and so my calendar <laughs> didn't notify me of things. Do we need a bitch to tell us the operating system's differences? <laughs> um. So yeah, I, I would. I would have happily had somebody who's just like, hey, Ben, you know, get up. Like, you're fucking going to be late. Ooh. Well, well, I want to I go even a step further than that. I want them, the assistant, to go, sir, wake up. Here's your itinerary. I printed it out. It's color-coded. There's pictures. You can't fuck it up. <laughs> oh, I, I, need, I need her to tell me in the moment, like, five Ten minutes. Oh, I oh you want, I, dude, I, I actually agree with you. I want to go that far. I want to do the whole thing of like, you know, you have this meeting in five minutes. Voicemail incoming. You have two minutes for it. I want to be that because here's the thing. I don't know if the cinema audience recognize this or not. They sh- fucking should. We are that attentive of businessmen. When we do this podcast for you guys, it's in the middle of us keeping track of this restaurant. And we're sorry that you can't make it to Times Square in New York or can't get a reservation for our restaurant, but we clearly have obligations to the live customers and the live feed of a restaurant that this podcast, you know, can't always fulfill. So, Ben, I'm actually agree with you that, you know, maybe as we go forward, because in a weird way, you know, Ben and Rob have real jobs that, you know, take us away from the restaurant. We need someone to keep track of these things. So how about this? This episode is an open call because I don't have anybody in mind. Who wants to be our personal assistant? What do you think about that? Yeah, man, let let us know if you want to send us emails and shit. Don't laugh, Ben. You're diminishing it right now. (laughs) (laughs) You're diminishing my joke. (laughs) Everybody, hit us up. Maximo, you're our our lawyer. You're always going to be our lawyer. You've written us many legal contracts in the past, and I swear, uh, whenever we get our first cease and desist letter um, for pushing the boundaries of fair use that Rob likes to do, we'll contact you, Maximo. But we need somebody who is a personal assistant to keep us on track, keep us on board. And this episode, at the start of the animation series, adult animation series, that sounded actually weird. It doesn't need to be a woman, I swear. (laughs) I think that that is a good call to action to get our fans interested in this podcast. That's all I'm trying to say, Ben. That's all I'm trying to say. (laughs) Right on, right on. With all that out of the way, with that call to action, was there anything else that you had for the restaurant? 
Uh, no, nothing else. I'm, okay. I'm good to wrap it up. This well, has been a productive board meeting. I think so as well. Well, all that being said, as we've mentioned many, many times through this episode, we talk a lot about many different things on the Cinemodities Patreon account. And if you want to join in and understand what we were saying, please check out the show notes or just type into your browser www.patreon.com slash cinemodities. For five bucks a month, you can download these episodes and hear a lot of different discussions about a lot of different things that Ben and I go through. If you want to pay more, check out those tiers. You can request movies for us to talk about. You can get early access to movies that we talk about. You can literally just pay to support this podcast. And that's uh, also what all tiers prior to that do. I think it's good fun. And Ben, anything you want to add about that? As always, I just like to say that we greatly ap- appreciate the support from our patrons. Um, throughout the the jo- throughout the episodes, we make jokes and and talk uh, flippantly about that support. But honestly, it is um, one of the greatest things to know that there are people out here who like what we're doing and want us to keep doing it. Dude, we do. Um, if you sign up after uh, this episode, um, you know it, it probably won't be you because you've already signed up. But you know, the last episode we did that was a fan request was the uh, "Sorry to Bother You" episode. If you do sign up for Patreon and listen to that, um, you will get to experience maybe, you know, implicitly uh, what it feels like to be a patron. Because I know, Ben, at the start of that discussion, we uh, gush over that somebody wanted to give us money to discuss a movie that I I had a thesis about. I mean, you know, just like in this episode, I said I had a lot of thoughts about animation. I want to dive into them, that type of thing. Um, somebody requested we talk about Sorry to Bother You, the 2018, you know, um, uh, Boots Riley movie, uh, Lakeith Stanfield starring type of thing. And, um, you know, I came at that episode and I was like, dude, I'm so glad somebody wanted us to talk about this because I have so many thoughts about this, but I don't know how to organize them. And this has given me the chance to organize them, that type of thing. So not only are you going to force us to talk about the movies you want us to talk about, but also you're going to make us think about these movies in a way that I think is meaningful, for sure. Absolutely. And um, like I said, you know, we greatly appreciate it. Uh, and without you guys, I wouldn't sound nearly as good as I do right now. <laughs> oh, uh, dude, yeah, we should We should also mention that at the start of this series uh, because we mentioned it before, but I'll, we'll mention it again. Uh, the Patreon money, not only, well, first and foremost, it has gone to continuing this podcast 100%. That was the first expense we ever made with the Patreon money. Um, we made sure that we are good to go through Podbean for full dissemination to Apple, to Spotify, to Podbean, to Stitcher, to Deezer, all these things. We made sure that was possible because of your support on the Patreon. After that, we said, hey, Ben sounds like he's talking through a tin can asshole half the time. Can we do better? And I think, Ben, we've done a lot better. Uh, you know, being that I don't hear myself, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> yes, that is uh, that is um, another pitch for maybe one day when we make enough money, we can pay someone to edit this stuff because it takes Rob way too long. <laughs> <laughs> um, with with that being said, that's beside the point. We love everything you guys have done, and we love the Patreon. Even if you just want more bonus episodes, that five bucks a month it really means a lot. It really does add up, you know. Um, you're getting three episodes a month, that type of thing, when you subscribe. And um, not only are you getting more content that we love to create, but you're getting more content that you're paying for that makes us 
um, more willing to create and giving us, giving you better stuff, I would say. With that being said, Ben, God, this, this one's bad. When you're not under the red hood, <laughs> where can people find you? <laughs> I, I didn't have a good one. I was going to do something with like, when you're not doing a photo shoot with the crowbar, but that's stupid. When you're not under the red hood, Ben, where can people support you specifically? Uh, you can support me by checking out my life counting app. Uh, it is for Magic the Gathering, specifically for Commander, but it can be used for all formats. Uh, this can be found on the Play Store and on the um, App Store, and there will be a link uh, or links posted in the show notes uh, so that you can uh, come check it out. It is free to download. Um, the only thing I ask is that if you're going to uh, buy any merchandise uh, for playing card games, that you use my affiliate link for TCG Player because I will get a kickback for sending uh, them your business. And that is pretty much the only monetary support that this app brings me. And it is something that I, you know, kind of built in my spare time for me and my friends. And it has become quite a, a kind of an important thing to me. And I think pretty recently um, I broke like 200 downloads on the App Store. Nice. Yeah. So I, I don't know what happened that people on the App Store heard about my app. Uh, hopefully it's from this and you know, yeah. keep, Hell keep yeah. at it dude right on right on well with all that being said um i think i i mean this unless you have a strong opinion i think the best way to end this episode is with them um, the opening credits music in reverse i mean we didn't even talk about it but the music in this movie the score is really really good it really adds to the tension in this movie and i think you know it's best exemplified by the uh, opening credits type of thing sure yeah no i'm i'm with you all right well then next week everybody now i'll spoil it then i'm so excited we're talking about the seminal anime movie a movie that i love that the universe seems to love ghost in the shell i'm super fucking excited I can't wait. Uh, it's honestly one that I have not seen, and I'm excited to watch it for this recording. Dude, you the, haven't? Uh, are you saying you've I never have, seen? I've never seen the animated Ghost in the Shell movie. Whoa! Get yes, ready to bust is, a fucking nut. <laughs> uh, I am. I am very excited for for this first time experience. Okay. And, okay. And to, get to share it with the audience. 